0: Welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and we have an incredibly exciting and busy episode tonight. We're starting a little late, so I'm going to skip my usual rambling at the start and just start (laughs) introducing folks. You can hear him laughing. He's here, as he always is. It's the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. And the Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert is and here. Shockingly, as well. I'm not laughing. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's true. But it, it's only a matter of time. That's it's right. Only a of time. <laughs> uh, but most importantly, we have three special guests who are really the focus of tonight. We have our um, our writers' room, as it were, for right. the So Film, Film Project. Um, we have our our sort of like I don't know which of you wants to be showrunner or maybe co-showrunners, but I'll just introduce all three of you. We have. Nick Marie and Rhiannon. How are y'all tonight?
1: Hello. Yeah, and I think uh uh, uh uh Nick has been uh called off to a, a domestic situation. This okay, yes. guy with his uh, uh,
0: as he warned us, he would be.
1: That's right. We have, uh, you know, we're uh, we're very parenting friendly here on Film <laughs> Film Broadcast, so it's all good. Uh, uh, whether one is parenting children or animals, nevertheless, sometimes these things happen. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, so glad you guys could join us today. This is going to be a lot of fun, and not only, you know, and this is a, yeah, you know, I kind of want to just... Pause to recognize at the beginning what a big deal this is, right? Um, because we've done script outlines before. That's been a part of our uh, a part of our production since season one. We've been looking at um, you know after thinking through the, the you know all of the different episodes and everything, and all the themes and ideas, and discussing the the concepts and and, and you know and the stories and things um, to then have. You know, you guys, uh, are, you know, and, and, uh, uh, Nick and Maria, I know you guys have been with us from the beginning, um. Uh, working with, you know, with the help of others uh, to uh, to formulate outlines, right? To give us a, a really clear sense of, like, the shape of these episodes and and therefore the shape of the whole story of the whole season and how that would work. And it was always so much fun to kind of see that stuff really kind of coming together from the sort of ramblings that we do uh, during uh, during our discussions as we, as we go through. But, of course, this year... Uh, you know, for this season, we have something entirely different and really exciting, which is actual full scripts for the first time ever. Uh, And that's kind of uh, really amazing. This is just the very first thing I would want to say before we go any further and do anything else is just uh, how deeply impressed I am by not only the amount, but the quality of work you guys have done this year. This is amazing stuff.
2: So that's because Rhiannon joined the team, and she's our script writer, oh, which man. is better than having a writing room. You have someone who actually writes scripts. <laughs> so she's she's done awesome work, and uh, we're really glad she was able to uh, put this together. Yeah.
1: Yeah this is uh, uh, this is really great so you guys so Rihanna and you were part of the discussion so, so they you guys did the discussions like you did in previous years uh, and then Rihanna and you went from you know the the the, the discussions of the outlines to, to drafting the scripts is that how it worked
3: yes that's pretty much what happened okay. so I discovered film film for the first time in like January of this year mm-hmm. listened to every single episode and got <laughs> caught up on it. Awesome. And then when I was caught up, I joined the discussion forums. And like a couple days after I joined, I saw a post for a script discussion. And I was like, well, why not? I could be part of this. Yeah. And so I sat in on the discussion. And going into film, film, going into the discussion, I did not have any idea that I was going to be writing scripts. But thinking about what we had discussed a couple days after our scripts discussion, I realized I was thinking through scenes and thinking about characters in a way that I could actually put it together and write a real script. Mm -hmm. So I did that, and I wrote the script for episode four, because that was the first discussion that I was part of. And I got such wonderful feedback from that on the discussion boards that I thought I should just continue. And so I have tried to get a script for every single episode of the season, and I'm about halfway through one for episode 11 now and still working on that and will hopefully have it done by the time we're ready to talk
1: about that one. Excellent. Yeah, well, we, we still have several weeks before we get to that, I think. So, So yeah, we st- still have a, a, a little bit of lead time. Um, yeah, so, um, and uh, Marie, is there a, a link um, that we could, uh, that you could post uh maybe uh for uh the scripts so like i I, I, I wanted to put it in twitch because people in twitch were asking sure sure
2: it's also on that powerpoint but I'll, i'll give you the link right
1: right um
4: what a concept
1: yeah okay well anyway rihanna these are fantastic uh i just uh i I have to admit, I was, like, completely drawn in uh, and uh, was just really excited to see the stories emerge. And um, it was um, just... I I keep wanting to use words like incredible, not just because, you know, not out of a, uh, you know, some kind of just, like, hyperbole, uh, but because as, you know... Those of us, you know, who have been working on film, film now for years, you know, it's been more than four years. It's been, I mean, when was the date of our first episode? Does anybody remember, like, how long Film, film has actually been going on?
2: You announced Film um, at uh, Myth3. Yeah, at, Myth at 3. Myth 3
1: Yeah, right.
0: which was in the yeah. winter.
1: Just so that 20, was 20... Tw-
0: 2013?
1: 14? Uh, would have been 14. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Fourteen, or yeah.
1: maybe when, maybe uh, January uh, of fifteen.
4: Yeah, because oh, the yeah, last Hobbit, it was Hobbit film came out, wasn't it? Because the Hobbit film came out in, in December fourteen. Right. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. So January of of fifteen, and then we did so. it that
4: spring. I think we kicked it off that spring. Yeah. So we yeah. announced it in, in at MythMoot, and then I think it was that spring.
1: Yeah. So we're 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 four and a half years basically at this point into the film film project. So again. Rihanna, I, I, I keep wanting to use words like incredible and everything because we've been doing this for four and a half years, and, and I never really imagined that that would happen. <laughs> you know that we would actually have scripts. Uh, it's there's um, uh, there's a there's a, the, there's a kind of it, it was just, just sort of amazing to uh, to read and sort of see that kind of uh, reality. You know, to the project, uh, which is uh, yeah. And Professor Olson
5: suddenly realized just how lazy his Skype prayers have been up until this point. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
1: no, just no criticism of the work that had been done in the past just uh, uh just a a wonderful and and uh, uh unforeseen addition uh, which was really cool all right well I want to dig into the scripts and start talking uh in detail about the sort of the story production that you guys were doing uh uh as you went from uh from our uh you know discussions in the in the earlier episodes that people have heard um, uh down to uh uh, down to uh, the scripts. But first, announcements, because this is a very announcement-important time of year. Uh, so we have lots of announcements, and our announcements are the big announcement, of course, is that we are in our fall fundraising campaign right now. It is fundraising time at Signum University, the one time of year when I actually ask you for money instead of doing that all the time. I know I you know, am a supporter of some wonderful nonprofits that... Um, Are like every single time they interact with me, they're begging me for money, which I know gets really old. So I try not to do that for Signum University, though we are a lovely nonprofit who does really need money. Um, So fall fundraising campaign uh, is when we do that. And we've got lots of stuff going on uh, in our fall fundraising campaign this year. Um, A a bunch of events uh, that are happening, of course, uh, uh, in two days. On October 5th is our Lotro Marathon. Uh, I do that every year. Uh, My, like... uh 12 plus hour lotro marathon that I'm going to be doing starting at noon, uh, this coming Saturday on October 5th. Uh, there are some other, uh, you know, events that we're doing our Mythgard movie club, uh, discussion of Pan's Labyrinth, a new Signum Symposium that's tomorrow, October 4th on Philip Pullman's secret Commonwealth. Um, we have of course one of our regional moots that's happening here in the middle of this middle moot, uh, on October 12th out in Iowa. Um, Uh, And our big campaign finale on October 19th. But I want to draw particular attention to the State of the University Address on October 7th. So that's next Monday, October 7th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the future. Of Signum University, it's time for and
3: it's amazing. Uh, yeah. It's amazing.
1: It's we're taking we're taking our next big steps. Um, yeah. You know, Signum is uh, is growing and expanding over these. Uh, you know, in, in this next year, uh, and so I'm really excited to share the vision with people about where we're going and why and what we're planning. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's so that's going to be that's going to be particularly fun uh, this year. Um, so and obviously, I just want to. Um, uh, to, you know, invite you, uh, you know, f- if you have been enjoying our broadcasts and uh, everything that Signum uh, has made possible, I hope that you will consider uh, making a donation to support Signum University. Um, our uh, donors have done so much and, and we've accomplished so much with the help of our donors uh, over the last, you know, seven years or so that we've been doing, Is I think, our seventh uh, fundraising campaign. Um, so, um, yeah uh anyway the the and the, so the last thing I wanted to mention about that one of the things that we i'd love to sort of give back to thank our donors for the uh for all the donations that they give uh and we of course have our normal uh uh uh, uh you know uh donor thanking uh, system, right, where we have uh, lots of different uh, uh, gifts that we like to give to our donors in, in gratitude for the, for the donations that they give us. And you can find all of that information uh, if you scroll down on that page, signumuniversity.org slash fund. Uh, if you go there, you can see all the information about our donor reward program and stuff. But in addition, uh, I'd like to do a separate giveaway uh, for symphom Specifically, So if you are a Film Film listener and you either have a, a monthly donation that is, is running or if you give uh, a, a gift or set up a donation uh, during the fall fundraising campaign here, um, just send an email to donate at signumu.org. And uh, let us know that you gave a donation. would like to be added into uh, added to our drawing. We're going to be doing a drawing um, during the finale, during the October 19th campaign finale uh, 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 webathon that we're going to be doing there. Um, and we're going to draw three uh, film, film participants uh, who, again, who have made donations and sent an email to say they want to be entered into that drawing. Uh, and all of the... Uh, all, all three will receive one of our anytime audit uh, uh, courses so you can go through the Signum catalog and pick any course that you're interested in uh, and um, can uh, and, and and you know you'll get access to to the, to the course materials of that course and there will be a special grand prize to the grand prize winner. This is something we gave away before and I want to give away again and of course our script writers uh, will, uh, f- fully appreciate the value of the grand prize film uh, 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 gift for uh, the grand prize winner. And that is a veto. veto power. Veto power. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Unilateral veto power over <laughs> any decision that the execs make that you hate. <laughs> and we'll just have to deal with it. That's just, and you know, obviously there will be some rational restrictions on this. You know, like, uh, you know, you can't win the win the drawing and then be like, okay, so I want to do the version where Morgoth wins at the end. Like, no, like that's yeah, not, right. we're not we're not doing that. But, but, but uh, a, a a reasonable veto over a decision that we make uh, that 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 you don't like. That's right. That's what, that's what you will get. Um, and do keep in mind, uh, so with the, uh, with the, the entry to the asynchronous drawings, um, if you listen to more than one of our broadcasts, we're, we're, we're doing this for, uh, for all of our broadcast audiences. Um, you do have to choose one because we're only one entry per, uh, uh, per, per, per person. Um, you can't vote early and often. Yeah. Early, but not often. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Um, so, um, Anyway, okay, so that's, just wanted to let you know that is what is coming. So we will, again, we'll be doing the drawings on October 19th, uh, during the finale there. So, um, uh, uh please don't forget first to make your donation and then to send an email donate at signum you org uh, and uh, we will uh, we will do our drawing later on there so
4: hey I have a little PS that's yeah. kind of tangential to the annual uh, fundraiser mm-hmm. um, and I was reminded of this today and since we're on tape I wanted to like put this into posterity I don't know that a lot of people know this but the Amazon smile feature where you're able yes. to like click uh, click a nonprofit you know to donate a piece of what you buy on Amazon to that nonprofit. Signum University is in that program. We are, yes. So, you know, it doesn't cost you any more money, but if you chose to, if you don't already have a charity and you use Amazon, look it up, Amazon Smile, and you just, you know, search on Signum, and there it is, and click it, and Bob's your uncle.
1: Yeah, or whatever. absolutely. Yeah, no, it's very and 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 Bob weighs your uncle. Um, <laughs> Bob
4: weighs your uncle.
1: That's yeah, right. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, it is. It's super. It's very simple and doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Okay. Amazon Smile's is a cool little program. Thank you for reminding me about that. About yeah. That. Okay. Cool. Awesome. All right. So again, thanks everybody for your uh, for your donations, and uh, we are excited about you know the future ahead of Signum here. But now let us get back to the exciting present, uh, and that is our review of the scripts. So, we do have, as uh, uh, Marie foreboded, uh, the links for the script outlines and the scripts here. Um, uh, I, yeah, there we go. I don't think I can actually like copy them or something straight from here on my screen currently, but it's all good. There they are. Uh, and, um, or you can navigate as instructed here along the top. Um, cool. So let's talk about, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about episode one. Um, tell me what were some of the challenges that you guys had? Like what, what was, what was most challenging about episode one? Did you guys feel when you were sitting down to try to, to try to, 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 to sort of block all of this through and, and, and work it out? What was hardest? <laughs>
2: well, there's a few challenges in this episode. One is that um, you had requested that the main climatic awesome event of the episode not be shown on screen, which <laughs> seems like an
1: odd well, the choice actual, to us. The actual dismemberment.
2: No, no. The entire rescue of mythras Because you had requested that there be a time skip from and right. sees my dress on the cliff to they arrive in the, on the eagle with nothing in between and we were puzzling over how that would read to
4: the audience and what they might What think possessed us? Having well, read the script no. now, I'm like, what possessed us to do that? No, well, no. you had
2: your reasons and the reasons were valid
4: concerns about what
2: yeah. happens when you show it to what the audience would see. So. We, we kind of considered it and we wanted to preserve the drama of the scene while addressing some of your concerns in the way we put it together. So we tried to have our cake and eat it too, Mm -hmm. whether or not we succeeded is up to you to determine. Um, Yeah. I I mean,
1: yeah, I, I, so my, and of course this is, this is where I try to like, remember what my thought was played back when we talked about this, which was ever so long ago now.
4: We were mostly just hoping you'd forget
1: about it. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand. Which <laughs> is why she
5: promptly reminded you for some reason. Well, I think
4: no, we no. were trying to keep in an element of tension. The tension, and I mean, we wanted it to be so that not only did the elves not know what became, but the audience didn't know either kind of thing. Well, you I,
1: know? I, but, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things there was that I wanted the the dramatic moment not to be... It is possible, of course, the like... Taking Mithros off the wall and flying away with him on the eagle, right, um, could be like the big moment, the dramatic moment that I wanted was the arrival, right, right. of Thingan and Mithros because I wanted the force of the action to. Basically, I didn't want that just to be if the f- if the focal if, the, after if the, yeah if the focal point of the episode. Is basically what happens in private between Fingon and Mythros, Um, Then that's where the emphasis is placed, right? I don't want. I I I wouldn't want that episode or that element. I, I guess I should say of that episode to look like a buddy movie, right? It's it's about the effect on the community. That's the right. the, the purpose of it, and that and that final arrival. Right. Not to mention the fact that I actually think there's really and the way that it came out, I thought was pretty good. Um, as far as like the actual dramatic effect, the way that you guys had built up the conflict there between the two of them. And then the Eagle comes, uh, uh, comes in and, and then, you know, Fingon descends with Mithros in his arms. And, um, you know, the, I love the laugh. Forget who, who, who said it. It was one of the fan who was like, Oh, uh, he, that he recovered Mithros's body for us. That was very kind.
3: (laughs) Right. It was cool. that said that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah. So I, I I I thought that 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 seemed to me still like to work really well in in that way that I was thinking, right? That uh, so that the focal point, the real dramatic action, is what happens when everyone's reunited, right? When everyone is brought back together. That 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 moment in the large gathering of people uh, was where I really thought that the dramatic climax of the episode should be, rather than right. The taking away by the eagle.
4: I loved having having the audience find out because I love, first of all, the scene where it cuts when he gets his sword, right? And you're like, oh, and you know, he's saying, like he you leave he leaves you with the impression that he's going to like off Mithros, right? Right. And then we cut to Morgoth, and then discover through Morgoth. So that means the elves still don't know, Mm -hmm. but the audience doesn't know. I loved that. I thought that was awesome. And then I absolutely had a picture of Morgoth throwing a dart at the orc. That was great. <laughs> what? <laughs> he he throws the arrow as if throwing a dart and kills the orc. The mess he killed the messenger basically. Right.
6: Right. Okay.
3: Well I thought Morgoth would be the kind of Vala to do that. But like offing his followers at random is totally yeah. something. Would and do. like you
4: said, you know, he he kept talking to the orc even after he was dead on the floor, which is totally Morgoth. <laughs> yes. so I loved it. That was awesome.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean, some of the issues that we, and I agreed with you that the focal point, like the there had to be some doubt as to what was going on with Thingon and Mithros, at you know, when Thorndor shows up at the um mm-hmm. you know, in front of the rest of the Noldor. Right. Um and I agreed with you on that point. Um I think that there is, you know, like, it is very difficult to imagine this giant Eagle showing up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was also a great opportunity for us to address the whole, well, why don't they just have the Eagles do it? Why don't they just have the Eagles do it issue? Right, right. right and have right. Thorndor address that verbally. Yeah, specific I thought that
4: was really good. Yeah. I thought That was really yeah,
5: yeah, and also to address the idea that he is not a tame Eagle.
1: Right. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I, no, I like the idea of I like the idea of using um, Silmarillion film uh, to, uh, to, to grind your axe on the long-standing like <laughs> yes point of contention between Tolkien
1: fans and the rest of the world. Can, let's make it really clear from the beginning Let's yeah. try from the beginning to make it really clear uh, why that's such a stupid comment. Yes Yes. yes.
3: Yeah, Once and for the all balance wings issue
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. If you can. Yeah. Let's. 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 let's Like. Let's. As we continue through this process for the next three decades. Um. Let's. Let's. Let's keep updating our list of like. uh, Of like stupid things people think about Tolkien and then (laughs) knocking it off one at a time.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. It's the least we can do during the during the course of the run of film film. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. And as far as you know the, the. the other thing, you know, so so Marie, here's a confession: when you were talking about leaving out the dramatic moment, or like you know the dramatic moment happening off stage, uh, the way that you guys handled it, which is, I mean, you know, I thought very much in the spirit of what we were describing, really, um, is. I mean, very little of the rescue did, act, in fact. Ha- in fact, there's only one thing that happened off screen, and that's the actual dismemberment, like the actual cutting off of his hand. Um, you know, all of the rest of it was even down to like him, like chipping with his knife, trying to get the you know the the, the bracket off the wall, right? Um, so, you know, there and and you know the the Rondor showing up and everything. Anyway, so it's all there, right? So we actually we we do get the benefit of. Seeing Maedhros and 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 Fingon there, getting that whole you know the laying the foundation uh, for the you know the way that that scene is an anticipation of you know two really important scenes to come when Baron and Luthien, and then with Sam and Frodo. So you know we get all that, um, but we still get suspense as well, right? Suspense in uh, in in because you, you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, Trish, as you say, it looks like he might have to. Uh, go back to plan A, which was killing him.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, Right. There were a few issues that you guys brought up that we endeavored to address by shifting the narrative slightly. For example, when, um, you know, it was brought up. Well, uh, Mythos begs for death. And then the eagle brings Finn right up, and Finn gone. Wow, of course.
1: Well, no, that's so easy to do. (laughs)
5: Yeah, up on the um, up on the cliff, and then he tries to get the thing off, but and so Mithros begs for him to kill him again. And the way that we addressed that was by making was by keeping Mithros morose, not morose. uh, you, You know, keeping him. Date like, right. like he doesn't. There's no excitement when right. he, Fingon is brought up there because he he knows he's there's hopeless. no way that he's getting this. Yeah, sentence. yeah. He's hopeless. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, that 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 was good. I mean, of course, and even to the way in which those things kind of correlate. I mean, one of the things which this scene really foregrounded in a way which we have done. And I know this was an issue, of course, especially in season three, with the, you know, how do we show the hardiness of the elves surviving the Helcaraxa, right? And really kind of emphasize that. But just the ways in which elves are not like humans, right? So here's my so Mythroth surviving without sustenance for years on the cliff face, kind of certainly foregrounds that, right?
5: Um, Which was another issue that came up over the course of discussing the episode, because in my mind, you know, I didn't want it to be clear at all that how long they were there. Yeah, because the longer they're there, the weirder, it seems. Yeah. You know, there was discussion of, you know, how just how much of a threat, the Noldor camps feel like they're under, Right. you know, how certain are they that they're going to be attacked if they go out in any significant numbers, for example. Right. Um, and there was discussion about, well, you know, if they're there for five years, then they kind of have to have like farming going on. And I said, no, 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 you can't have like these quiet scenes of, of farming elves and right. have there be this kind of tension built between these two camps It, it destroys that tension
1: well it's it is really one of the major challenges of the time scale right um it's easy for tolkien so i mean tolkien is doing two things right i mean there are really two forms in which he wrote this narrative uh one is in plot summary form uh and the other is in annals right like lists of years and again, that's, it's really easy to be like, well, this happened, and then five years later, this happened. Like, that, that's easy to do when you're doing entries in the annals, right? Um, it's much harder to actually kind of depict that on the ground. And with a lot of this stuff, he never did that at all. Um, and, of course, we know from his own experience, even just in the writing of The Lord of the Rings, um, when, you know, sort of narrative push comes to shove, right, Time, you know, making sure that the time frames all worked and that, you know, there was enough time for everything to happen and, and, and things to happen logically was a major, you know, issue of his, a major concern of his, as he was certainly during the Lord of the Rings process. It's not, obviously, the Lord of the Rings story is not the same in this way as with uh, large uh, swaths of time passing, but still, it is very hard. And um, I do have to admit, it was one of the thing, one of the first, uh, Question sort of questions that was raised in my mind as I was uh, as I was going through the script the first time was how much time was passing there and I was like do we really need five years to go by while Mythros is still on the cliffside and because see here's the thing like time is this is I mean the, the challenge here is that time is different for elves right so five years isn't necessarily going to feel like a really long time. I mean, from a human standpoint, five years is a really long time. Um, I mean, again, it's been almost five years since we started this film film project. And that feels like a really long time ago that we began, you know, I couldn't even remember exactly when it was. Um, and so, Nick, as you say, the immediacy of the threat from Angband, um, the uh, the immediacy—you know—it's it's possible to fall into this stalemate with the between the two camps, right? Where like you can go on thinking for years, like, well, maybe, but but maybe today is the day they're going to try something. I mean, that's possible to be stretched out, but um, but imagining poor Mythros, you know, with moss growing on him uh, on the cliff side, and and uh, uh, it. Um, it's challenging. It's challenging. You know, is there, um, let me, i put this another way. What, um, what is the, what would be lost if we shortened that time span there? Just the initial time span between, um, to make less time have passed. What would we, what would we lose? So the
5: strongest objection that was raised, um, to my mind and, and I'm in the camp that we don't need it, okay. but when objections were raised, one of the strongest ones that I felt um, was raised in opposition to shortening that time span was that the five years indicates just how, like, the Noldor completely let this opportunity get away from them.
1: Right, right.
5: You know, Morgoth is vulnerable. If they had gotten it together, they possibly could have, you know, put together an assault on, on Angband and taken him out ostensibly. Um, right. right. But they they hang out there for five years doing nothing. Right. You know, and and that's what their their treachery and suspicion of treachery has done. Yep. Yep.
3: So this is one of the few episodes where we actually say a concrete amount of time. Yeah, I noticed that. And I wanted it to happen in this first episode. To do some of the things you were talking about, mm-hmm. establishing that for elves, five years doesn't seem like a very long time. So the elves will be hanging out in their camps, and I guess they're probably used to years of the trees, which are like nine point something of uh, our regular years of the sun. Mm-hmm. So to them it would seem like maybe six months has passed, but reminding the viewer that it isn't six months, like the elves are acting like it is, it is five years, and Mithros hasn't been hanging there for five years. He's been hanging there much longer. So what it's doing is showing what Nick said about they are really wasting their time, that they could be attacking Morgoth, and Mithros is pretty miserable hanging up there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly... The fact that the elves aren't in a hurry, right, Is and this is one of the places, uh, you know, Nick, as you say, um, where... A little, um, like if if Hurin and Huor had been there, they would have bloody attacked during those first few years, right? It would have happened yes. if the hum- if if there were humans in charge or even humans contributing to these discussions, right? Um, the idea that like five years could go by and then and you know and people would be like, huh, hmm, gosh, I wonder if we're missing an opportunity here. Um, uh, but yeah, the idea of like quick and decisive action even is not really an elvish thing. Um, even in
5: general and understanding that some of the, you know, some people might be looking for that, um, was one of the reasons why my, I've been strenuously opposed to any, um, any outright statement of how long this period of time is, because it really should be the amount of time that the viewer thinks it is. Whatever the amount of time the viewer thinks it is, that's how long it is.
1: Right. Because, of course, it doesn't have to be five years in order to be a waste of time. Right. I mean, exactly. you know, goodness knows there can be military situations where waiting a day, you know, waiting a week, waiting a month could be a complete loss of, you know, what would have been a tactical opportunity. So that idea of like seizing the time when the when the when the you know the fear of the sun was was new upon them. Um, you could, I, I could imagine conveying that even if they only delayed one week, right? You know that, like within a week, Morgoth is reacting, right? Um, and See, uh, if we
3: get that, then we wouldn't get the difference between how elves use time and how the human yeah. audience of the show use yeah. time. So yep. the elves are acting like it's a week or it's just a couple of months. The humans watching the show are going to react and say wow, the elves really wasted a lot of time. They perceive time much differently than us. It seems to go a lot slower for them.
1: Right, right. And the only, um, the risk, right, is, well, we take a risk in conveying that. Because, of course, if if the viewers, if the audience doesn't receive that in the right spirit, then it sounds merely comical. Right. right? We we don't want to make the elves look ridiculous. Um, but it's a fine line, right? I mean, it, it is because we, we do want to convey that it's genuinely alien, right? I mean, it's different yeah. from us. Um, and and ha- I think we're ha- definitely ha-
5: going to... Go ahead.
2: Sorry. I was to say, ha- suggestion has been that with season four, we should emphasize the timelessness of elves by not having explicit references to how much right. time has passed. And then in season yeah. five, when men are on screen, that's when we can start drawing those differences and being like, wow, you mean hundreds of years passed in the last season? How did we not know that? And it's because the elves are like, what do you mean? It was no big deal. So (laughs) he he, he was thinking we'd have better opportunities next season to get into it. And he wanted to push to avoid explicit timekeeping by the elves. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't reference years of the sun yet, because presumably the elves are paying attention to the movements of the sun and will have noticed when a year has passed. So like when we want to start referencing things is debatable, but that shift throughout the season into next season was something Hakon wanted to emphasize. Mm -hmm.
1: And certainly doing the, the one reference here at the beginning, I mean, Rihanna and I do think it's a very interesting idea to say, like, let's just say it once in order to help like calibrate the viewers right into
3: exactly it's a little foretaste of what's going to come
1: exactly exactly um uh, and then we never talk about it again so that but but we do convey the idea if if you were watching this first episode and had the impression that they'd only been here for a couple weeks um no it's been five years so just like take that fact and, you know, retain that in the back of your minds throughout the whole rest of the season uh, as a kind of scale for uh, for the kind of thing that you're doing. That, I mean, that's that's an interesting mechanism, I think.
5: Um, I mean,
1: yeah. Sorry, Nick. I don't know if
5: five... No, it's okay. I, I, I don't know if five years is really a long enough period of time for that to have the kind of impact that we're looking for in something like that. Also, I'm trying to avoid the kind of, like, nitpicky kind of like, well, when exactly did that happen? And did they have enough time to get from here to there? And, right. you know, and, you know, well, why haven't they developed their camps more? And why, you, you know, what are they eating? How are they like, I'm trying to avoid those conversations, right? By just leaving it vague enough for, you know, and if somebody has read the tale of years, they they say, Oh, it's five years. And that kind of makes sense. It looks like, it, you know, they've been there for a while. And if the, a person has not read that, they're not sitting there scratching their head trying to, trying to figure out what the situation is. Right. You know, right. whereas a time, you know, whereas the longer time periods, like, for instance, during the building of Gondolin, um, I think afford that a little bit better for us than, you know, this relative comparatively short period time period between the time you know where where Mythros is hanging from his wrist on right. a cliff right you know
1: right no but um but i think again as a as a kind of calibration though i do think that it can work right i mean if again like so if basically the viewers experience they're looking at this and if we hadn't said anything they would have thought that maybe it was weeks Right. Uh, that 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 this first episode was happening during and then we're like, oh, yeah, P.S., it's been five years. Right. Um, then when later on, I mean, we're going to see by episode four, we're going to see whole strongholds being built and the kingdoms, established and everything. So looking at this, people are likely to be like, oh, this looks like it's probably a couple years later. Right? And they're like, well, no. Remember that thing that looked like a few weeks was five years. This is actually about a hundred years later, right? Um, so that the, you know the scale is kind of projectable from that. Or again, not it, it doesn't even have to be mathematically so, right? Just in order to give that one nudge to say what looks like a what what you may assume has been a short time on screen is actually not just twice as long, not just five times as long, but you know, uh, uh, actually like a couple hundred times as long uh, as it might have looked like, or or as you might assume, um, because yeah, different scale here.
3: The other benefit of having the reference in this specific episode is that like you said earlier, it emphasizes the hardiness of the elves. People realize that it's been more than five years that Mithras has been hanging up on this cliff, Mm so he's Something more than human, if he is
1: surviving that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and that I think is in a. So I, I I I kind of had two thoughts, Rhiannon, about that, like in quick succession when I got to the scene where that was it where it actually came up. Right. Um, my first thought was like, wow, like uh, you know, actually saying it, like, yep, yeah, I've been hanging here for years, and I basically haven't eaten or drunk, but I'm okay. I mean, no, I mean, I'm not okay, but I'm alive still. Um, is uh, I was like, you know, my first thought was maybe we don't want to actually explicitly talk about that, but then my second thought was, but if we don't, everyone is going to assume it's just an oversight. Like, you know, that it's it's going to it's going to be impossible for people to suspend disbelief even if they were to think that it was weeks, right? I mean, it's also interesting
5: that, that Maiver basically invents the science of astronomy while hanging on a cliff
1: to count. <laughs> <Right>. carry... <laughs>
3: what else does he have to do?
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> Didn't did yeah. you know
3: have like give him some books to read while he was hanging or something.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he's probably composed uh, you know, uh poetry and, and he's he's devised the science of astronomy and uh um yeah. Yeah, no I'm sure he would have he would uh, I mean and he's got I mean the one thing he has is a nice view, right? It's like the only thing he has going for him. Um yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, um
5: another thing that we ran into is that the early parts of the episode have to do a lot. Yes. And so we had to get a lot done in so scenes had to do more than one thing at a time. So, yes. in order to squeeze in the forging of Ringel, for example, we needed to it, to use that as the backdrop for the conversation between Fingon and, and Fingolfin. That yes. leads to Fingon going off on his crazy rescue mission because we needed to set that up, it, you know, for it, early enough in the episode so that w- people underst- so the viewer understands that that's what they're watching. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. No. And I, I, I agree. And that's, that all seemed, that all seemed good. I mean, I certainly think feeling like, uh, I don't know. I, I definitely think that if, if you're feeling like every scene has multiple things that it has to accomplish, that is by far preferable to the opposite problem, right? Where you feel like you've got dead space that needs to be filled. Uh, So, yeah. And I think that that's often that that's often really possible. There were this is this might not seem like really high praise, but given um, given the nature of season four, um, the fact that I went through the first four episodes and I was not. I almost never at any point was I like, ah, some exposition, ah, delightful, let's hear more exposition, right? I mean, I thought that that went really well. Um, this is a season in which it is super hard to avoid stretches of exposition, uh, you know, because a lot of the things that happen, uh, you know, again, we we get a lot of like, and meanwhile, what have we been doing? Let us talk about what we have been doing over the last, you know, 20 years or something. Yeah. Um, uh, that situation arises quite a bit, <clears throat> but it didn't really feel awkward.
5: Yeah. Uh, so that one of the things that was important about this season was to make sure that we were getting on the ground where decisions were being made. Yes. You know, because wh- th- things happen in, you know, of Valerian in its realms, right? Things happened during that period of time. Yeah, so we needed to get at why they happened and what led to those decisions. It's been the same thing that we've been dealing with the entire s- series. Essentially, right. right. we know we kind of know what the climax of the episode is. Right. But we need to figure out what led to that so that we get there.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that that makes sense. I thought that was, I thought that was really good. Um, let's see, what was the other thing I was going to, there'd been another thing I was just going to transition to. Oh yeah. So the one thing, there was one moment. And again, keep in mind, I mean, all of this in a very complimentary way, uh, and, and 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 also keep in mind that I have in mind Tolkien's vocabulary and on fairy stories. The distinction that he makes between suspending disbelief and engaging secondary, uh, engaging secondary belief, right? In yes. uh, in general, I I, I found myself uh, very thoroughly drawn into secondary belief all the way through. Uh, and so therefore, it's, it, Tolkien's description of that uh, has become my kind of go-to vocabulary for those moments. Because I know, ex- I, you know, I, I, as soon as I read that in On Fairy Stories for the first time, I was like, no, that's ex- that's exactly right. Um, when you feel that a story demands, like where in order to, you know, that point when you're reading a story and you're like, well, in order to continue enjoying this story, I have to exert some work here, right? I have to, I have to actually, like, I, I'm experiencing disbelief or resistance to the story, and I, and I, I must exert that in order, to, in order to carry on. The only moment where I got a twitch of that was in the rapidity of the assumptions of the uh, the of Fingolfin's camp about Fingon's disappearance. Um, that how universally convinced they all were that he was certainly being held by the Tha- by the fanorians um th- i mean that some would say that and that some would think that um especially those who were sort of angrier and and you know a little closer to uh uh you know who you know the the characters who would go around with their hands on their sword hilts more often anyway right but was there? Am I? Am I? Am I misremembering? Was there a, a contrary voice? Was there anyone in Fingolfin's camp who was like there might be a perfectly you know some kind of other uh, explanation uh, for this? It felt a little too uniform. It felt like um, I was wanting at least somebody to 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 be trying to talk sense into them and and saying, hey, we're kind of we're all being rash here. Uh, did you guys talk about that? Well, I tried
3: to make Finrod that voice, but then have him sort of get shouted down or talked mm-hmm. over when he was trying to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, the first a great scene choice of them for having,
1: that.
3: yeah, <laughs> in the first scene of them having the council, like I, I think Kelgorm is throwing out some possible other things that might have happened right. to Fingon. Maybe He went hunting, and,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, and like sort of trying to agree with that, but then. Uh, Turgan and Fingolfin are saying we looked for him everywhere, there was no sign that he went hunting, he organizes the hunting of Trolls himself, so he knows that he should have told someone where he was going.
5: Mm. Yeah. So it, the... When we talked about it originally, um, we talked about it as the, the belief that Fingon is in the camp of mean maglor's camp
6: mm-hmm.
5: um is something that is not necessarily um it's it it doesn't go straight to they've got him like they've kidnapped
1: him right right
5: right um i mean i, I can see where that might get interpreted differently um the way that it's written in the outline <clears throat> um but when they basically the denial of the Theonorians that he is with them is what kind of solidifies the suspicion
1: right right <clears throat> right um yeah, let's see um. I'm just, I'm trying. So here's the thing that I really liked about it. Um, What I really liked about it is that it, it the suspicions of the Feanorians created like an unfolding crisis that Fingon and Mithros could arrive back in the midst of without just having to manufacture one totally artificially, right? Like, Coincidentally, at the same time, you know, hostilities were randomly starting to break out at exactly this point, just in time for right. Fingen to come back. Um, that there is an actual logical cause and effect relationship between yeah. Fingon's departure and his return, and Ooh. and the, I mean that that was that I thought was really w- was all really smart.
5: Yeah, because there there's there's something because when we talked about. Uh, you had wanted Thorndor to show up in front of, you know, figuratively right. all of the Noldor.
1: Yeah, yeah,
5: right. And so we knew that that meant that they had to be meeting in some way. Yeah. And in order for that to be along for the ride, dramatically speaking, mm-hmm. that the tension there needed to be escalating. Yes. Yeah. So it's so it's already super like even as it's written. It's kind of convenient that Thorndor happens to show up the instant before they come to blows. Now, presumably, being an eagle, he could see that things were disintegrating down right. there, and right. so he hurried up, right, right. and got right. there faster. Right. Um, that's that's how I would explain it to you know you, to the, questioning the timing, fans. Yes. At, yes,
1: exactly. Right. right you yeah.
5: know, at, yeah. at, co- at the Comic Con panel, that's how I'd be <laughs>
1: explaining right. it to
5: the person <laughs> right.
3: And I even had. Fingon, when he's on Thorondor, he notices that Fingolfin has drawn his sword because Ringle is a special shiny sword that shines differently, and so it's recognizable from the air. So he notices that and is like, hurry up, Throndra, we have to go stop them.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. Um, uh,
3: we can
2: we can probably work more subtlety into the dialogue before they confront the Thaenorians where there's more uncertainty. Um, part of the point of the script's is also just to get the whole story out and yes. to make everyone's motivations clear. So, um, I kind of have been encouraging Rihanna to be very explicit yes. <laughs> with no, what people are thinking and why. So, it, you you can add subtlety to that in revision, I think, yes. and and make a little bit more nuanced. So. You, I, I agree that we don't want it to seem like they jump too quickly to the wrong conclusion or too uh, uni- uniformly, uniformly to the wrong conclusion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. once and, the Fedorians act suspicious, everyone kind of comes to the point of view that they must be hiding something.
1: Right. And I totally agree, Marie. I think that's a very, very sensible way to approach it. Because, um, yeah, obviously, you know... In a revision process, right, it's much easier to, I mean, this is exactly what Tolkien did, right? Tolkien, uh, as we saw uh, in the history of the Lord of the Rings, um, when in Mythgard Academy, uh, Tolkien, when Tolkien revises, he always is reducing, Right. He reduces the dialogue. He, things just come out in dialogue, often his character dialogue, right? Like the entire plan and like the projection of what's going to happen next and everything that's going on. And then he'll go back and he'll actually cut the real references to it and make it much more subtle and implied uh, in, the, in, in the actual final version. But much better to just kind of get that stuff all out there uh, uh, first so that it's clear uh, rather than trying to go first for subtlety and ending up with cryptic. Right.
3: Yeah, and yeah. that's definitely something that I've ran into is I've had to cut dialogue where I'm just uh, completely explaining a character's motivations. And I'm like, they could be conveying that through their acting, not through what they're actually saying.
5: Right. 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 It's, it's <laughs> tough as a scriptwriter to remember that there's a physical human that's going to be standing there with a face that does right. things. Exactly. And you don't have to do all the work yourself.
1: Right. Yeah, the actor and the directors do play a role, you know, in in, in those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I
5: haven't written nearly as much script as Rhiannon has, you know, and I I have to commend her because, like, in all this time, I came up with about 25 minutes of a pilot, which not nearly as much material. So...
1: Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely uh, splendid. Now, again, as uh, Aslan's Compass on Twitch is saying, you know, Noldor making rash judgments and assuming the worst? Where have we seen that before? So like, yeah, it's not like it's out of character or completely crazy uh, for the Noldor to be doing something like that. And we do want to emphasize that this is still, despite the fact that five years have have passed, which seems a long time for humans, this is still a, pow- a powder keg situation that we have, you know, real enmity, uh, deep grudges, which are still very near to the surface and everything. Lots of suspicion. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not at all like an inappropriate direction for things to go.
5: Right. And Fingolfin's people are not wholly innocent in the situation either.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, one last thing I and want so, to touch. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
3: Well, I was just going to say that, that another thing that sort of causes an increase in tension and people more quickly jump into assumptions in Fingolfin's camp is the fact that the person they send as the messenger to the Fenorian camp is Rogan, who is Fingon's captain. So, like, they're probably very close. Yeah. So, Rogan is mm-hmm. the one who is in the Fenorian camp, and he's like, did you kill Fingon? Did you kill him? Is his body there in your camp? <laughs> so he's the quickest right. to jump to that, because he's really worried about his lord. So then he probably went back there and spun the tale of what the Fanorian said right. to make it much more suspicious-sounding to Turgon and Fingolfin before they went over to the meeting that Maglor organized.
1: Right. And... Rogrim also not necessarily the great strategist of the Noldor army... Right. I'm thinking also, I mean, um, in a very attractive and delightful way, bit of a thug. Right. I mean, (laughs) at least that's always been my view of his character. Uh, maybe it's just because of, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of him with his enormous hammer. It's the hammer. name. It's the name too, Satan. right? Rog. I mean, come on. Like, uh, was Everdene's name Rog? Yes, exactly. guys
2: fighting outside the walls. This is not the like, action of a strategist.
5: No. Yeah, th- no. Th- if this guy had a D and D class, he would definitely be a barbarian.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely exactly. Now that you've brought it up, I can say what I want to say more accurately. Intelligence is Rog's dump stat, right? We can all kind of agree on that, I think. Um, I mean, he took a feat for heavy armor, but you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, weapon specialization in in you know in the great hammer, I get it. But uh, but but anyway, yeah. So I, again, that, so that also makes sense. We see we see his his love for for Fingon and his loyalty to Fingon uh, and his suspicion of the Feanorians. Uh, and again, not not the not the. Brightest bulb in the Noldorin camp. So, yeah, yeah, that all that all I think works very well. And yet, so you so you're you're right about that. I was forgetting uh, Rowling's role. Um, and by the way, just as a side note, one of the things that was super fun about the scripts in general, um, I was really impressed at how well during the discussions when we're like mostly just discussing the major plot points and the the you know sort of the big issues and things like that. Um, There were characters which, you know, we'd kind of wave our hands at and be like, oh, yeah, we got to remember that these people exist, right? Because they've not come in. Like, Ignor, right? Um, That was one of the things that really struck me. Ignor is a much bigger character in the first four episodes than I expected him to be, which is great. What? Yeah. No, I mean look, I'm saying compared to our discussions. In our discussions, we be- we like we barely acknowledge I ignore's existence, but he's there. Like he's got a role. He's present. We see him on stage. Almost every time and almost every episode he comes up. Um, So, like, I'm not saying that, like, he has a lot of development, but he doesn't need development yet. He's not in a character development moment yet, right? That's going to come next season. But as far as, like, familiarity, that he's there, that Rogrim was there and got lines, you know, already at this point, that was cool. I like that. That we met, um, and uh, here I'm jumping ahead, but that we met Anal, that we, you know, um, the the... So yeah, no, there, there were there were several times when I was like, "Hey, this is really this is really cool," because those kinds of things are never things that really kind of entered much our discussion, or if they did, only in very general terms. Like when we'd say things like, "Oh yeah, we gotta we gotta remember that like you know this person we're gonna need this person to do something here in episode seven, so this person can't be a you know a jack in the box in season seven popping out of nowhere. We need to." You know, somehow kind of begin to set that up. So so I liked it. I was, it was, but that was, that was much more than I had, uh, had imagined. I know, Nick, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering from your tone that you, uh, would have, were, were, were feeling a lack of de- uh, development or a lack of time for that. Uh, no, it was more that
5: when, um, when you guys were talking about the unfortunate death of a certain individual. And about how I it would give Ignor more of a chance to because we never you know he's never been in like he hasn't done anything this whole time, and I was thinking but 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 he's he's done things he's like done there's things. things he's done, <laughs> um no that's all that's all yep. I was no, I got it
1: I got you I got you yep well it still it still will allow him uh, wonderful scope, uh, uh, but anyway yeah. That's a discussion for another time, however. <laughs> let's let's not get on that subject, or else we won't we won't uh, get to talk about episodes two through four. Uh, Shall we talk about episode two? or is there something else? One quick thing: the language thing in episode one, because the, the 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 language issue, episode one was the main yeah. language issue, right? After episode one, it smoothed out really easily, right? Um, mm. Were you guys happy with how the language thing came out?
3: I was pretty happy with it. I'd love to see what other people think about it.
5: I'm I really want to see what it looks like on screen. Like, I think that's where it's really gonna it, it's really gonna come out all right. Yeah. Um, hey, uh,
1: but just just quickly, Rihanna, could you direct me to like a page number in the in the season one script that I might go to to show on screen some examples of of the you know, the the quenya Cinderin telepathy moments. Sorry, and then, no, right, I, I, I wasn't minute, trying to I'm cut you off. But just,
3: my script. No, it's
1: okay.
3: Uh, okay, so the telepathy moment, that would be, I'm pretty sure it's in act three. I can give
4: you my thought while she's doing that. Um, I, um, I I was distracted by it at first, and then i started to really pay attention and i i i figured out that when they were speaking quenya they were speaking archaic english and not speaking quenya they weren't speaking archaic english um and also the fact that uh you know the 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 familiar which is the thou thy piece is amongst friends and family uh but the only thing was i saw a lack of consistency uh, like for example Caliborn and 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 um uh, kirdan when they're speaking to um, between themselves with nobody else around, they're speaking archaic English. They shouldn't be speaking Sindarin, so they shouldn't be using archaic English. Stuff like that, things that an editor could go through and just fix. But overall, I think it's an awesome idea because, hey, this is Tolkien. I mean, gosh, of course, right? We would do this. I mean, I could hear a fan going, why are you doing that? It's like my response would be, it's a Tolkien story. Why would we not be doing that? So, I thought that was kind of cool, and I do like using it as a distinction that these people are, these elves, are speaking a different language, even though to us both groups are speaking English. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but I, the consistency, you know, so like for example, when Fingen's speaking to the messenger from the Fe- Feanorians, he should be speaking the U version. And I can't remember if he is or not. But anyway, just to make sure we have the usage down right, but again, I think that's something you just figure out in editing. So it's not a big deal.
6: All
3: right, the bottom of page 17 is where the telepathy starts. And while yes, you're going there, I like to talk about my use of archaic English. Okay. So my goal in this was to use archaic English throughout all the main story. They're using a little bit more modern English in the frame when it's Bilbo and yes. Gandalf and Balin talking. Yes. But I wanted all the elves to be speaking archaically. And so what I did to this, because I have no experience at all writing in archaic English so I looked up the rules for it and cases when you would use the familiar thou versus the formal you. Mm -hmm. And what I read was that thou would be used when it's people speaking who are familiar with each other, so among family or among close friends, but also when it's someone in a higher social class speaking to someone in a lower social class. So, for example, Kingdon would talk to the messenger of the Fanorian camp using thou because He is a lord and he is above that messenger. That messenger is just a lowly soldier of somebody. Also, I read that it can be used insultingly. So especially when he's mad at somebody, he would be using thou, not you.
1: Yeah, because for exactly the reason, as you say, um, thou is by default the familiar one. Right. Which means if you're speaking to somebody who's not a close friend of yours and you're using thou... Um, you are either implying intimacy or you are saying you are you are lower than... I'm not speaking with respect to you. Um, this, by the way, of course, people will remember, although Tolkien doesn't depict it in the dialogue, this is what... Uh, remember how everyone in Minas Tirith thinks that Pippin is like a super... Like, he must be a prince? Um, and, and Tolkien explains that one of the reasons they think that is that... In the Shire, they just use the familiar form for everybody. Like the formal you is, is, is really not used in terms of formality at all. So when Pippin addresses Denethor, he calls him thou as if he were his cousin, or something like that. Because that's what you do in the Shire. But in Gondor, when they hear him referring to Denethor as thou, they're like, well, clearly he is Denethor's peer, or else he would never, no one would ever speak to Denethor like that, to the lord of the city, unless he were his peer uh, like that. So everyone's like, obviously, Pippin is a prince, right? Um, which, of course, ironically, he kind of is. But um, uh, but anyway, that, so that... that that kind of dimension of the, of the, of, of, of the, of thou is definitely, um, involved, uh, is definitely involved there that one of the coolest things. And, uh, this is, um, uh, Sparrow Alden's observation, uh, uh the coolest example of, the, the and thou thing if you want to find a really good Tolkien example read uh, the Athrobeth in Morgoth's ring the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth which of course we're going to be talking about a lot next season anyway when we get to Andreth um, but um, in the Athrobeth uh, Sparrow was the one who made this comment uh, in one of her early signum papers years ago, uh, and I've just been entranced by it ever since, because Christopher says, Christopher Tolkien points out, like, my father was inconsistent in his use of the and thou uh, in this. And Christopher just sees it as a blemish. Like, he just thinks that Tolkien didn't maintain it properly. Whereas Sparrow argues that it's because it's particularly Finrod, who sometimes calls her you and sometimes calls her thou. And so it just looks inconsistent. And Sparrow's argument is that there's actually very deliberate rhetorical reasons why he's doing that. There are times when he is speaking to her intimately as a friend, and there are other times when he speaks to her with respect as an equal. uh, And that that kind of ebbs and flows in emotionally appropriate ways as the conversation goes on. she did this really cool uh uh kind of thought experiment where she had um two people reading the passages, and like when Finrod says "Thou lean towards each other and when he says you you know lean away uh uh and it it works like it's really really cool just to kind of show the different modes in which he's speaking um anyway so you're right i mean that's that is um that is a uh uh an appropriate way uh uh, to do it, and you know, a, a lot of those subtleties are going to be kind of lost on people. But I do think it's appropriate to have them be have them be speaking more archaically. It's difficult.
4: I, I do suggest, though, that you consider having the Sindarin speak regularly. I mean, to, so that so that before we even get to the point where they don't understand each other, the audience understands that there's two languages going on here. There's or two cultures or something. You know, that they're different. Um, Rather than have them both speak the same, because they don't speak the same language.
1: Of course, the risk here is that if we um, if we have binary, basically, right, like form, you know, archaic, non-archaic. Um, and I agree, Rhiannon, as you said, even the... Uh, it, it is clear, and I, I could very much hear the difference between, uh, you know, Bilbo's conversations and, uh, you know, the Elves, con- the Noldorin conversations. Um, so I could tell that there was a, a shift in register there. But it's not really a question of, like modern English, right? They're not gonna be thinking and using modern words, right, uh, necessarily. Um, but, but again, if we have sort of a binary, right, they, they speak in, 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 in the more archaic diction, or they don't speak in archaic diction, we might not want to, we might want to save that, like, we might want to save that for human versus Elvish language or conversation, Um, rather than using it as a distinction between Quenya and Sindarin.
2: Yeah, I agree that elves' cultures are similar enough that we don't want to do a huge cultural divide between the language of the Noldor and the Sindar, but the the idea is that there are places in this episode where the audience will hear Sindarin spoken as Sindarin and hear Quenya spoken as Quenya, and hopefully that will help convey that.
1: Yeah. Yes. And
3: I tried to reference, like, which one they were speaking. Uh, I, I know I, in the script, I indicated using underlining, like, Cinderin has dashed underlines and Quinya has double underlines. Mm-hmm. But even when they're talking about which language is being spoken, I tried to have them say, not as directly as this, but, we're speaking Quinya now. Right. Something just so the audience, even if they aren't paying enough attention to notice the differences between the two versions of Elvish being spoken, and I think. Like, people who really pay attention will be able to tell that even though they're both Elvish, they're different languages, because quinian and Sindarin sound different when you listen to them. But I wanted to make it clear that they are different languages. And so one of the things that I did was uh, based on which group of Elves the scene was sort of being shown from the point of view of. mm mm-hmm they would be the ones speaking English and the people they were interacting with would be the ones speaking the other language whether it was Quenya or Sindarin. I also, there was a place when they first when Kiernan and Calaborn first come out of the woods and run into glorfindel and Rogren at the gates
6: mm-hmm.
3: I thought it might be good to just not even have subtitles there and just let the audience experience the feeling that they have a not having any idea what these right. people they have come up to are saying,
1: right, right. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Plus, it gives people on, on online discussion boards something to do as they try to, you know, translate the. Uh...
5: Yeah, you can just see the person Googling what does <laughs> right. <Pendle> say to
1: <laughs> right.
5: I do that all the time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. When,
5: when there's like unsubtitled Klingon in a Star Trek episode or exactly. something like
1: that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah yeah, no, that's good. i I um, I like it. I thought that the 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 way that the telepathy was brought in um, was really interesting. I don't think we talked do we talk about that like did we talk about that on the podcast and I forgot about it, or did we not talk about really telepathy it's, as a as a kind of tertium quid here between the?
5: So um, it had been discussed pretty early on. I think, like, it's definitely come up, but I don't think it was ever really, it's never really been discussed in detail what telepathy is and what it does and how it works and what the rules are, which was, you know, when we were talking during script discussions, oh, could we use telepathy here? It's like, well, we haven't really defined how that works yet, so maybe we wait a little bit before we do that, and we wind up putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and at this point, we're like, we can't put it off any longer because this is kind of, like, the main thing that's going to come into play here
1: yeah yeah uh no i thought it was done very well um i love the the whole uh, so the fact that you have um the fact that you have um some being like skilled at it you know being able to perceive others thoughts as turgan says here on the screen um is uh, uh, that that makes a lot of sense? I, th- I think that that's that seems to me right. I don't think that telepathy is just like a natural thing that all elves necessarily can do and all elves equally well. And to show some Finrod, Turgon, Galadriel who are better at that than other people um, is good. Uh, and of course, like we can't shy away from Galadriel and and uh, telepathy, right? I mean she's one of the ones whom Tolkien actively depicts doing that and Finrod as well with the, with the, uh, you know, when, with his discovery of the men. So, um, so that I thought worked really, well. even the fact that that kind of comes around to sort of showing that this, this skill, uh, is more prevalent, uh, in the, uh, house of Finarfin than it is in others. I thought was kind of cool. um, you know, even though that's never discussed, you know, but that was sort of something, again, Turgon is not of the House of Phenarf, I know it's not restricted to it, um, but that it correlated with it, I thought was kind of, was kind of cool. Okay. Anyway, in general, I thought it was, you know, I know it was, it was an issue that we talked about, um, but I thought it worked really smoothly. Let's, let's talk about episode two. What were a your great idea. some of your some of your primary reactions and thoughts about about episode two? So first, just a, oh, let's do a brief recap. So we ended with uh, the return of Myros and the recognition that he's alive, right? So the 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 beginning of episode two comes from uh, we're still among the Noldor and still the divided camps right Mathros is, is is now with the Theonorians, but the camps are still there and they're still divided and the 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 culmination of the episode uh, is the abdication of Mathros right
2: Yes remember um, that correctly we, okay Yeah we we had a lot of fun planning this episode partially because it's based on such a short amount of text Right like Obviously, we have the dialogue where Mithras needs the crown to and, but how to get to that point was pretty much just whatever you guys wanted, whatever we wanted. Right, and right. Um, so it, it was kind of fun to play with different ideas of what would lead the characters to that point. Um,
5: Which is what led us to the rather controversial dis- decision to make Kurifin Kind of the the lead character of the episode, which seems a little weird because he's not involved in the big event, right? But it just seems so naturally that he would be kind of working bes- behind the scenes yes. to, bring a, to bring a big chunk of Fingolfin's forces over to their side.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was that was interesting. Um and uh the the thing that I was most interested in in that little subplot was how swiftly, like how directly Fingolfin calls him out for it. You know, like Fingolfin sees through it and sees the motivations behind it, right? One of the logical extensions of the whole telepathy thing is that. So doing a, a kind of a plot based on like innuendo and like saying one thing but meaning another and putting a fair cloak before your intentions and uh, and all I mean all of those kinds of things which you know make for uh, uh, for interesting uh, stories. It's a lot harder when people can read your thoughts, right? I mean, when uh, uh, when 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 the characters are 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 a little bit not necessarily immune to that, but have defenses against that kind of thing, um, it makes it a little bit more difficult. So, I was kind of thinking, you know, so the moment when Fingol, it is Fingolfin, isn't it? Who kind of calls it out there and and and
2: uh, um... yes, there's a bit of a Parallel to Fingolfin trying to call Morgoth out (laughs) at the end of uh, the uh, next season that we're definitely anticipating in this scene.
1: Yes.
2: right uh, so yeah he's in full-on righteous anger mode
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and I, I, so my, my first response was uh, I uh, you know but I I had this one very brief flash where I was like wow that was very sudden um but then I was like actually yeah you know I mean maybe in a purely human drama you know there could be a whole like oh no what do you mean like oh I no that was not our intentions at all and I was like actually yeah no that's not <laughs> how it would go right um, among the elf lords they would be like I see to the heart of your intentions and forget about right. it, man. Um, right. I like that. And we and we had this, some discussion during when we were talking this over
5: about how like Curfin is targeting Finrod, which seems like a bad idea because Finrod surely could see through all this. But also, Finrod really wants to believe him. Yes. Right. Finrod yes. really wants to believe that Corfin's just looking out for him. And he really wants to believe that they can somehow fix this whole thing without bloodshed, which they wind up doing, but not through any of these machinations. Right. Um, and so and Corifin deliberately is using true things. He's telling him real things that happened to sway him. Right. You know, he doesn't lie to him. And right. that's that's really part of the insidiousness of Kurfin's character is he doesn't he doesn't really lie to you. Like, he, he never really lies to you. But...
2: Or he doesn't even talk to you at all, because he basically has Kellogorm as right. his mouthpiece throughout this whole thing. Right. And Kellogorm is not duplicitous. Right. So Kellogorm right. is saying things that he truly believes himself, which is why it's hard to see through it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's all very well done. But I agree with you, uh, Nick. Finrod is a really great choice. In the, because also, I mean, Finrod is, as you say, it's about his desires, right? He is, um, he's like one of the great reconcilers, right? He's one of the people who wants most to work with everybody and for everybody to get along. Um, and so, yes, although he is going to be very perceptive um, and is more sensitive and more able to read people's thoughts than anybody else, it's one thing to be able to have that ability, and it's another reason, and, it, and it's another thing actually to apply that ability, uh, you know, and uh, against your own inclinations, again, you know, and and read somewhere, uh, you know, and read in someone else's thoughts something which is not what you're hoping to see there, and something that's kind of alien to you, right? Exactly, exactly. Something that he might not really. Yes, look for even fully understand if he does read it necessarily yeah no exactly i i i I like that i th- I thought that 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 stuff all worked for me that that stuff all worked uh pretty well um especially and i like the way that mythros like we don't get nobody knows right mythros's right. abdication is a surprise to everybody and i like right. I, I really enjoyed that i really liked the um not only the drama of that but the the way that we get the reactions from all sides right as mythros does this um the way in which mythros is you know like now that mythros is back thinking has returned mythros so everything has changed, but everything is not changed in the sense of like, well, now everybody's friends, right? You know, Universal right, yeah, Harmony yeah. has broken out in the camps because Fingon returned with yeah. Mythros. Instead, it's going to be like, okay, now we're playing for different stakes, right? Now we got to figure things out different. And so you can see that right. with Kurafin. right? Now he's like, okay, different game, uh, so let's, right. let's take it a different approach. Just, he,
5: right, and, and while he could have potentially manipulated Maglor, he can't really manipulate Mithros, and that was that. Really got shown towards the tail end of season three. Also, is right. that he really can't manipulate Mithros? Mithros is kind of onto him, right? You know, and so he's he's got to work through other people, and now he's working through Telagorm to work through Finrod because that seemed, that's an easier target than Mithros.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep absolutely. no, I thought that was uh, that that came across really well and so yeah, so the way that you get um, i mean one way to one way to to kind of kind of paraphrase the main action of episode two is sort of like okay, so now Fingen has returned with Mithros, so now the whole situation has changed, but exactly how has it changed and it's not until the end when we when we get Mithros' abdication that we really see. Um, the permanent... It's, it's, it's kind of cool to see the dramatic climax of episode one, um, which suggests, uh, you know, sort of lays the groundwork for this coming together. It It's still... We're, there's still still suspense about it at the end of episode two, right? Uh, when we see sort of the fruit of that in uh, Maedhros's abdication. Um, and, I, again, I just... I, I loved the way that that Came about. It felt very natural.
5: Now, meanwhile, in the south, uh, Galadriel of all people is having the encounter with fairy.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, that was neat. Uh, I really liked uh, the arrival there um, and her. Um. So she's coming. So she. We had her traveling with Celeborn? No Wait, who was she traveling with? She was. In the script, she travels with Celeborn, yes. Okay. In the script, she travels with Calborn. That's what I thought. That was another thing that I was noticing, um, you know, when we talked in the episodes about um, the whole development of the relationship between Celeborn and Galadriel, we sort of focused on the, like, big turning points, right? The major moments. Um, and I sk- noticed that in the scripts, they got much more consistent interaction time than... Uh, you know, we then had necessarily uh, not going through and imagining it out scene by scene uh, in the discussions than I had thought. Um, how were you guys feeling about that? Are you, are you comfortable? Happy with how the Celeborn and Galadriel relationship is being set up from the beginning? Are there things that you were uncertain about? What were your thoughts about that as you were beginning to work that in?
5: Well, I definitely wanted to make sure that things don't come quite as much out of left field, sure. um, especially when at the Marathon, when she starts sparing her soul to him. It's not right. that weird because they've kind of been building at least a cursory relationship up until that point. Um Another thing that I liked about her arrival there, like they have that little feast kind of to celebrate her arrival. And Norn Norn immediately reads her. Like, Norn has her number right (laughs) away. Like, the Sith have no idea. But Norn immediately gets it.
1: Right. Right.
5: Without even talking to her. He's just like watching her. And he immediately has her number and starts telling Mob this unsolicited story about the petty dwarves for no reason whatsoever.
1: Yes. Yes, the parallel that that was that was one of the most no not one of that was the most surprising moment in episode two for me uh, the like p- uh, parallel of between Galadriel and the petty dwarves that was uh, um, that was really interesting that was really interesting <coughs> but also I mean talk about accomplishing multiple things right yeah yeah uh, yeah one of the things that that was making me think about the that whole moment, the Norn moment, uh, and his reading of Galadriel was, um, it was making me realize Galadriel has, by far, the slowest developing character development of any character in all of film film.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, nobody's character develops more slowly then Galadriel's character develops. Um, Because she's still going to be... The things that Norn sees, she's still going to be struggling with that in the Lord of the Rings, at the end of the Third Age. It's still going to be an issue, right? Um, So we're... (laughs) playing a really long game with Goadrio, And with this season, this season is the real crisis of it because we're showing her in crisis, right? Um, And so somehow she has to emerge from this crisis having changed but not having had some kind of complete conversion experience.
5: Yeah, and and it's also true that we're probably going to have to have her kind of backslide at least once or twice over the, you know, yeah. thousands of years there's gonna be things that like she's gonna wind up doing things that has the going are we sure this is one of the good guys because right. that right. was kind. Of... and um i think that we've kind of walked that line a little bit with melian this mm-hmm. season and, and i think that um we've kind of been getting some reactions to that that maybe the way that we've been depicting her is a little darker than people are kind of expecting um
3: I but think what we've when, been going for with Melian is perilous.
5: Right. That's the exact the exact word. Like I want people to be thinking about why why the men of Rohan and why Boromir are, are so nervous about Galadriel. Right. Is like there's something dangerous about this person. Yeah. You know?
1: And and well and you know, Nick, as you were saying with like the encounter <laughs> with Fairy, right? I mean, there needs to be like that needs to be sort of proportional, right? That she feels as mysterious and, and, and dangerous in a sense, perilous, right? Uh, to the elves as the elves do to the humans. Um, that seems to me appropriate. Uh, she shouldn't be like one of the girls, you know, uh, Melian. Um, uh, and, and by the way, PS, I really like how, the relationship between Luthien and Galadriel. Like, Luthien is one of the girls, right? So, like, they, they, you know, she was able to, like, the two of them are able to bond on a level that Galadriel doesn't bond with Melian on. Um, You don't, like, get to be friends. You know, you don't get to be, you know, pals uh, with, like, you know, Melian doesn't have BFFs, right? Um, Right, uh she condescended to have a husband but she does not have a bff uh among the elves like she's just she's a different order of being um but um anyway so all that that all that stuff was really interesting and i agree with you about relapses i think that showing her to be on you know we can show her by the end of the season to be on a different trajectory than she was at the beginning of the season, um, but that right. doesn't mean that the issue is over for the rest of her life. And there will be other moments and temptations when we will see her changing in different directions. Collateral yeah. yeah. well, is
2: going to be a good guy, but she's going to be ambitious, yes. and that, that ambition is not going to go away. So no. that's what Norn sees in her: is the ambition.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rihanna, you're going to say. She-
3: yeah, so the change that I was trying to show with her encounter with Melian that happens at the end of episode two was she goes from wanting to rule a realm of her own right then to wanting to learn how to become a better queen.
1: Right, right. So
3: that's some of the stuff she does in episode three is Melian comes to her and like offers to teach her how to make this new recipe of limits. So Galadriel is like, yes, I want to learn how to do that because that's how you become an elf queen.
5: Right,
1: right, exactly. I want that's I, that's
5: on that's it's got to be on your resume.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like to to make to make you know, she wants to be able to make the next level, Lembus, so that you know, absolutely, because then she's not just going to be one of the elf queens, right? She's going to be, yeah, no, it, it, it all it, it all makes sense, and you can see the the pragmatic element of her interest there again, without her just seeming like a villain or. Um, or seeming her seeming too, but by the way, I did not think Melian was too dark. I got mysterious. I got um, again. I, I certainly got the sense that you know you're not just gonna um, you know she's not like your hostess at tea. Like that is not what living in Doriath is like, even if you're Galadriel. Um But uh, but I didn't think she was. I mean, I I wasn't questioning well, her goodness.
5: Well, we, we went a little darker quite recently, so okay. you'll, you'll see what we're going to talk about.
1: Okay. Well, so we'll get a chance <laughs> for further darkness. And by the way, a side note here, thinking about Melian and her words to Galadriel and those conversations from the text, um, I just love how that, you know, so Rihanna, one of my very favorite things about having scripts is placing. The lines of the Silmarillion and the kinds of contexts mm. that we do. I mean, whenever I'm going through the script and the <coughs> passages of the text emerge, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's this an awesome experience, you know. This this sort of like all of a sudden whoop, like there, there I am, like in the you know these words which are so intimately familiar, uh, and then but like the before and the after, and sometimes. Yeah things interjected in between. Uh, it is such a, a kind of a magical effect as you're reading through. I, I just love that.
5: Yeah. Huh.
1: Context. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it really em- to me, it really emphasizes. Um, I am just forced to remember every time that pops up of how isolated of context, you know, how 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 bare in a lot of ways the plot summary of the silmarillion is i mean that's 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 the mode it's meant to be i mean it's it's, it's yeah, I, you know, I don't yeah because that, the character
5: doesn't just walk up to another character and say the line that's in the silmarillion that's not how that went down there was right. a conversation surrounding that
1: right the entire genre that the silmarillion is in like that whole style of writing is it's 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 the word that christopher tolkien uses to describe it which is of course perfectly accurate is epitomizing which means the narrative that's there, like when Angrod delivers his line or when, you know, when Carinthyr does his nay furthers, you know, speech and when, you know, when Galadriel uh, uh, and Melian have their conversation, even those moments which are down close to the action are still epitomes, right? Like that exchange between Melian and Galadriel is not meant to be like, and that's the only conversation they ever had about this it's it's an epitome it's an encapsulation of the interactions between Melian and and Gladrial that happened over years you know um mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, but again, we're, you know, the way that we've managed, we, I say, as if I did the work, the way that you guys have managed to preserve those things uh, and have them come in and and have them fit in uh, neatly into the tapestry, I think is really, is really cool. I I just love those things. Um, Anyway, so, sorry, I'm kind of digressing now from where we were talking about with Galadriel. Um, Episode two... Celeborn is still in he goes back to the north, right? So he's still back in the north and he's not but he no, it's because it's in episode three, he returns with the message of Thingol, right? Yes.
2: Right. At okay. the at the end of this episode is when he departs. Is when he
1: leaves, right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, and uh, one one um, side note of uh, or one side effect, that is, I should say, of uh, how drawn in I was by these scripts is that I like you know I read them all one after the other so I sometimes in, I'm, I get fuzzy as to which happened in which episode because I, I, I read them all four at once um uh okay so that happens at the he weaves at the end of so what else in the Doriath action um I'm forgetting does goandrio Glad- G- has her crisis by the end of this episode
5: um she it's not really resolved
1: no but okay, she collapses so. like she does her yes yeah okay yes.
5: Yeah. yeah so she she has and she has her encounter with fairy and it leaves her kind of and also another thing that i thought we needed to be very very careful was to make sure that it didn't look like melian was seeing everything that galadriel was seeing yes in the vision, like because we can't, like because otherwise we give we're, the kinslaying's given away. Yes, or people are wondering why. Why doesn't Melian know about the kinslaying? You, you know, or, it, we can leave it kind of vague. Like maybe she knows, maybe she doesn't know. But we can't tell the audience is using the language of film. We can't tell the audience Million totally knows.
1: Right. 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 Yeah, and that is that would be harder. I mean you know, I mean, hey, right, she's a Maya, she could have ineffable reasons for not uh, revealing that to her husband, but that's hard. I mean, that would require right. suspension of disbelief, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we do need to have, so are, are there. It would just be another
5: in a long list of people that are keeping secrets from thingle in this <laughs> season, but. You
1: know. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think we probably don't want to have her actually can actively concealing things, at least not yet, um, from thing that time could come perhaps, um, but not yet. Um, okay. So how I- I'm forgetting now, how did we convey, we listen to me again. Um, how, how did you guys convey the, um, uh, that million doesn't see the things that we see, that Galadriel sees?
3: So what happens is, in the scene, Galadriel goes into this little secret garden that Melian has within Doriath, and Melian has, like, a waterfall there, and this cup, and she fills it with water from the waterfall. Right. And so, as she and Gladriel talk back and forth, Gladriel picks up the water from the cup, and like, she asks Melian what it is, And Melian doesn't give her a straight answer, but she's like, this could hurt you if you don't have peace between your mind and your heart, or Mm -hmm. something like that. And so Galadriel, being Galadriel, is like, well, I have to try this. And so she drinks it, and immediately starts having a vision that's like very personal to her it's representing what she desires so i had her like immediately come face to face with feanor and feanor takes off his crown and puts it on gladriel because Mm -hmm. that's what Galadriel wants at this Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. in her character arc and then uh, she continues on and like at the end of the vision she collapses and melian is still outside the vision right and but she catches Galadriel, but she didn't see inside Galadriel's mind. Okay,
5: right. They're, like there's no kind of like cutting in between. Like you're not seeing like, like millions eyes right before you go into the vision. Like when when we see Galadriel do that, for example, in the Lord of the Rings films. Right. When Galadriel does the one who has seen the eye, and <laughs> you, and then you see her, her eyes, and then you see the eye. Right. Right. The implication is that she is also seeing that she see either put that image in Frodo's head or is seeing it at the same time. Right. Um, So the, uh, you know, because we didn't have a moment after because Galadriel's passed out. She can't, Melian can't ask her, what did you see? Which is what happens during the mirror scene in Lord of uh, of the Rings. Um, But there is definitely film language that can be used to. Telegraph to the audience that, you know, that this is a collective vision, but we want to make sure we shied away from that kind of
1: thing. Right. Right. That makes sense. And, uh, I loved the water thing. I loved the anticipation of the, of the mirror of Galadriel, you know, it's like those, those moments when everyone, cause I mean, with Galadriel we have to be especially sensitive to this, right? I mean, she's one of the only characters in the entire, uh, you know, uh, first age, part of the story here that everybody recognizes, right? That everybody is, you know, thinks they already know, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And is going to be making, making connections forward. Um, so, so yeah, like having those, those, uh, even just as like a piece of fan service, it's brilliant, but it's more than that, right? The way in which we can see her, um, learning from Melian, but not just imitating her. I loved the difference, right? Um, it would have been too on the nose for her to look into the water and see a vision there, right? For her instead to have, uh, to take this vision into her, right, by drinking the water and and, and having this happening to her um, was, uh, was sufficiently different. And, and, and again, not just a difference which seemed merely like, a random difference in order to distinguish the two, right? It was it was clearly a different right. experience for her. It affected her. It, it, it you know it, it was more invasive, right? Uh, because yeah. she really took it in rather than only perceiving it. Um, but again,
5: it was something that she chose. So we wanted yes. to make sure that Melian didn't like offer it to her or hold it out to her, right? Because we didn't want to put Melian in a position where she was actively endangering. Where it appeared that she right. was actively endangering. Uh, but we did want to <clears throat> mirror the yes, scene.
1: Absolutely, obviously. Um, yeah, no, that was great. That. I loved that. I, I, yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, that Peril, and again, both the similarities and the differences, I thought worked really, really well. Um, and the fact that that. Um, because we didn't just dis- in the in the in the podcast we didn't discuss the mechanism there at all, right? We talked about her having a uh, uh, you know having this crisis uh, with you know we had Melian being involved, but I don't think we talked at all about the mechanism, did we? That was just you guys.
2: I, I think you had implied that it would be a she looks into her eyes, yeah. Like when Galadriel greets yeah. the Fellowship, and the parallel was going to be there, right? And that's my big
1: memory,
5: and that's yes, what made me nervous was the fact that she'd be looking at your eyes which i felt was immediately going to tell the audience that million is seeing everything
1: is seeing things yeah no you're right you're right that would make a lot, um we don't want it to to look like she is reading there what happened yep no that's good no and, and this is better anyway so that's good
2: well we wanted to emphasize the feeling of fairy and so by having surroundings that spoke to it we figured that would help
5: as yeah. well and and as everybody knows you don't eat or drink anything that uh, somebody very right. often right. yeah. some bad things happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, now can never leave Doriath. so there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cool.
3: And the other thing this does, having it set where it is in the episode, is it's a moment of tension, and like you wouldn't want to go from the scene where Fingolfin goes up to the gates of the Fanyoran camp and is demanding that they come out and answer for their crimes to Galadriel calmly sitting at a feast, looking in Melian's eyes. Right. So it has to be something more interesting than that happening in the scene in between the major plot of the episode.
1: Right. Right. It has to be perilous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was good. I agree. Um, One last issue... And it's not so much an issue in episode two specifically. It comes up first for me in episode two, but um, is, uh, you know, it carries on through three and four. And that is the length of Mithros' recovery, the length of time yeah. it takes Mithros to recover. Now, obviously, I understand why we don't want it to look like he's just like you know, gets a good night's sleep and it's fine in the morning. Like, we want to show that, you know, lasting damage has been done. And obviously when we're getting up towards episode four and the training montages and stuff, that's different, right? Acquiring new skills with his left hand is different from the recovery of his health, right? Um... But he seems to be really weak for a super super long time, and I was wondering what the th- I, I kept expecting him to recover again, just his health, not necessarily uh, his skills, um, but his health m- faster than he was. He se- it seems to take him like decades to get better, and I was wondering why. That so, was. Well, he was There's
5: hanging a... on the cliff for for five yeah. years. Well, yeah, well,
1: the, I mean the
2: sure. the main issue is that in episode three the conflict is around what they're going to do about the Morgoth situation now that the Noldor are reconciled with each other. Right. And obviously, Maedhras's idea is let's fight Morgoth. Attack.
1: Yes, right. Attack. Yeah. yeah.
2: And Fingolfin's idea is no, let's not because obviously they don't and Fingolfin's high king. So they have to do it. Fingolfin does. <laughs> um, Right. The point. So we needed Maedhras to want something that he was incapable of doing himself because if he was completely battle-ready in episode three, then it would be more likely that Fangolfin's reaction would be like, knock yourself out, dude, have fun. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, whereas what he's saying is we should all go fight Morgoth, and by all of us, I mean, all of you. <laughs> and right. So, and so Midros knows that he doesn't have the personal ability to follow through with that goal yet, and that's what he's working towards in episode four. So we needed that arc to last from his rescue in episode one until his training montage in episode four. I certainly agree there could be changes in how the physical recovery works, but he needed to be not battle ready in episode three for plot reasons.
1: Right, right. That I can understand. That makes sense. Um, And certainly, you know, just as we're... Showing, like, yeah, he can exist, uh, he can survive on, you know, stapled to a cliff with no sustenance for five years, um, has per- clearly put him outside the range of like normal human issues of injury and recovery, right, and survival. Um, so the fact that he doesn't recover at the rate that you know, a human might recover, not from a similar thing, of course, but from, like, a parallel or proportional thing, Um, uh, again, like, it's fine, like, he survived in a way that was alien to normal human activity. Um, Why should we then necessarily assume that his recovery follows uh, a trajectory that would be something that we would connect to directly? uh, there, there also, are
2: examples of real life long-term
1: recovery oh absolutely for
2: instance uh victims of holocaust camps mm-hmm. might have been in the hospital for a year afterwards uh recuperating so to speak right so I, I and you know kids who grew up in refugee camps and lived through starvation and stuff have very serious long-term
1: effects sure physical yeah um, yeah
5: so, Not i mentioned calabrian went through a similar experience and wind up having to go to the undying lands immediately after. Mm -hmm. So like elves are extremely resistant to death from that kind of trauma, but that doesn't mean that they're able to come back. Like they don't necessarily bounce back because like we would have been dead day three, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
5: You know, and if we were grabbed on day two, then maybe we'd be in the hospital for like a month recovering f- from that. Right. Whereas he lasts for five <laughs>
1: years.
5: Yeah. Right? So when you think you're proportionally, it actually, it makes kind of sense.
1: It Something does sense. though. I, I, I guess it's not that I don't understand all that. I, I do. Um, but there's another way to think about the proportions, right? That is to say, somebody who can survive without food and water for five years seems like he should be snapping back faster than this is, yeah. is, is the, th- that's the thing that I found kept going on in the back of my head as I was reading it. Um, right. I'm like, look, if, if he is like, so superhuman as this, then, you know, like, again, I sure. Yeah. I could take, it could, you know, if it were me, you know, and, <laughs> uh, assuming it, you know, even they were feeding me for five years or whatever. Um, Uh, I might take even longer. Sure. But again, I wouldn't have survived five years without food and water. So, um, uh, my own experience and projections wouldn't be a guide. Um, one of the things that I'm wondering here, is there a way that we could convey more clearly, um, Nick, what you were hinting at, right? The, that is, it's not just about the body. It's about the spirit Mm -hmm. as well for elves, you know? Uh, and if, uh, you know, if an like th- this is connected, of course, to the way in which elves can die of grief, right? Right. Um, the way in which Feanor's spirit burned itself out and and cremated his body on the spot, right? Why, why, why? You know, why are those things? You know, what what do we see in those things? So, what I'm wondering is, with I guess,
5: uh, well, you could say that elves bodies are sustained by their spirit mm-hmm. in a way that ours are not and so when when my verse is up there right like his body is surviving but his body is essentially eating away his spirit to keep him to keep the body alive and so when he's recovering the way that he's recovered like his spirit has to heal in order for his body to be able to heal Right? And yes. so that might be something we could we could say more clearly.
3: Well, one thing that I do have him say is in episode one, he doesn't say I've just survived here for th- so long without eating. He says that Morgoth's power is what's sustaining him. Mm-hmm. It makes like Thing and ask him. He's like, "How did you survive?" And he's like, "It's Morgoth's power somehow. Even though I'm really hungry and thirsty all the time, somehow I'm not dying." So I think that if Morgoth was not directly involved in keeping Mithras alive in order to torture him, he would have just died. Mm. So I think if we want to extrapolate from that, we could say that somehow the way that Morgoth was keeping him alive has made it more difficult for him to get out of this state.
1: Mm. Maybe like the work drafts, maybe. Yeah, or... Yeah, exactly. And that could be...
5: Or the the ring rates rings
1: mm-hmm. is
5: probably mm-hmm. a closer analogy. Yeah, he's like butter scraped over too much bread.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean it would be. Um, actually, I kind of like I I, I I kind of like the orc drafts thing in a sense um, because so actually that's much more interest much more interesting. That is, I think that that's more. It would be great to see more of that. I think because shouldn't somebody ask the question: um, Is Maedhros okay? Right, like he's alive and that's cool and everything. But has he been tainted by Morgoth? I mean, mm. Morgoth. Like, so what happened? Like Morgoth in you know, again, I'm imagining other characters saying this, like, so hang on, so Mithros survived because he was sustained by the spirit of Morgoth, so like, this Morgoth has touched him in this way, like, is he different? Is he the same as he was? Is he... And we could even use this as a kind of a foreshadowing of the the spell of bottomless dread that we're going to get later on, right? Um, Them wondering about the long-term effects on Mithros and his character, and I would think that maybe um
5: mythos Mar- 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 needs an immediate shower upon his return
1: <laughs> well what would he need i mean he would need <sighs> what kind of impact would it have on his spirit on the one hand we can see the um the hopelessness that he was experiencing mm. with finger right, you know when he was on the cliffside, right is one way that we can sort of show, um that is certainly the 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 end state that Morgoth was shooting for, right? You know that's what he was wanting to inspire, I would think in Mythros. In other words, so you could say that in a sense he was under Morgoth's influence, right? His spirit has been uh while his body is sustained, his spirit is suppressed um or diseased even in a sense by Morgoth? Mm-hmm. I, w- I don't want to say corrupted because corrupted implies his own will being corrupted and his will hasn't been corrupted. But mightn't somebody ask that question? Has his will been corrupted? Mightn't even Kurifin maybe ask that question in episode mm-hmm. 3 after the abdication?
5: <sighs> yeah. Because he's got to be asking himself some questions as to what, like, because this doesn't seem like the same guy.
1: Right. Right,
5: and, and he doesn't like he, even even when he recovers, he's not the same guy. Yeah, he
2: has changed, and I would think that yeah, his brothers would put, potentially worry about what caused that change. Right, and
1: and Fingen can, would be the other one that I would think about. would would be thinking about.
2: Yeah, it, right. Yeah, F- Fingen wants to make sure that what he brought back
1: was Mithras. To make sure, I mean, to put it very bluntly, to make sure he made the right call when he didn't shoot him. Right? I mm-hmm. mean, we that is he could even question uh on some level at least. He could question would that in fact have been the best thing to it? Would that have been the Have I done Mithras a favor, you know, in bringing him back? Um is his I mean, spirit
5: think so initially i mean right
1: exactly Mithros, i mean we know like on the cliff face Mithros didn't think so right that's not what he was asking for he was asking for death um so if, yeah if
5: it, yeah if we were telling a different sorry I, I, no
1: no no go ahead go ahead
5: interrupted. if we were telling a different story like a slightly different kind of story we could have said that Mithros abdicated the crown specifically because he felt so hopeless he felt right like you know, like, I, I don't think that's the story that we're trying to tell, but we certainly could have told it that way. If we were
1: yes, to. I agree that that's not I mean, the the, the chain we, we want to make sure that it is clear that his abdication is a positive, not a negative step. This is not him being apathetic or him being hopeless or or anything like that or him being corrupted uh, or even him just feeling inadequate and weak. Right. Um, he is making a positive step. He is he is uh, taking, in fact, a strong and courageous action despite his own weakness, despite his continued suffering. Um, but um, in
3: that case, it might be best for them not to question: it, Has he been somehow tainted by Morgoth by his time on the cliff? We want to focus on this is definitely Mithros that has come back and is abdicating. We shouldn't say, "Well." is it Mithros with some of Morgoth's spirit still in him that's doing the abdication? Right. I don't think there should be any question in there. And I think if we don't bring it up at all, the viewers won't jump to that conclusion.
1: Maybe not. Maybe not. Though, um, again, I I, 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 th- I... I think if... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nick.
5: I think that if Fingon is the one asking that question, then that kind of... Then, yes, I think that causes that problem. Um, I'm less concerned about his... In a scene, right.
1: And that's what I was going to say. I think it's hard for me to, Im- I mean, un- the more I think about this, I'm like, Corfin totally would ask that question, wouldn't he? I mean,
2: if, And if not Corfin, Amras. Right. Because Amras was the one who trusted Mithros the most before his capture. And if he came back and did this, uh, Amras might be trying to figure out what's going on here.
1: Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. With through Amras I think is the way that we could bring this in like on a a more purely personal level right mm-hmm. like if Amras is asking or questioning the motivation it seems would be like uh brother mine are you okay right whereas Kurafin his questions are more politically motivated right his questioning would be more politically motivated i would think i agree with you nick it is conceivable that Fingon could have some concerns, but he should not doubt mythros I think that his, 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 and he should certainly perceive the significance, you know, the real meaning of, of what, of the, of, of the abdication and what, and what lay behind it. I'm wondering, could the...
3: If we are going to add someone questioning this about Magros, we should probably try to somehow work it into one of our existing scenes or mm-hmm. replace an existing scene with it, rather than adding a scene.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well,
3: yeah. Wait, the best place yes. I thought for it to go would be the scene with Maglor when Marthos is laying in bed and like he gets Maglor to come in, and Maglor is like singing a song for him.
1: Yes. Yes.
3: Maglo could be the one who is concerned about Mythos's health and makes some kind of. Cause maybe Maglo like perceives somehow that there might be some taint of Morgoth on him, and he's like, "Good for you, Mythos! You are a healing from that taint of Morgoth." Right. Like when Mythos appears to be hopeful at the end of that scene.
1: Do we have how much? How much self-doubt does Mythos experience? Do we think?
5: Well, here's the thing.
1: If, if he, he, the thing is that he is going. I love Marie's to, laugh in the background. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> well, he,
5: he's he's
1: the least doubting
5: of their of their purpose and whatnot moving forward. Um. So, if we wanted to show him struggling with self doubt, then we would need some sort of incident to take place. To kind of alleviate that. And I don't know that in our story economy at, at this point, I, I mean, maybe we could find some something in there to do that with, but... <clears throat> well, um,
1: my thought about that is that if we, because you're right, I mean, we do not want self-doubt to be a major part of his character profile moving forward um, right. at all. But if he has it now, like when he's still bedridden at the beginning would be when he would have it, right? And he would get over that. And in fact, we could even if we if we had a moment like that, if he's wondering, okay, I I never thought I would live. I thought I was going to be there forever. I was, you know, this is a, now I'm back, and now what next? Now what happens? And and so the question, like, am I gonna? Can I lead? Um, can I lead my brothers as I have before? Can I lead everybody? Is that what's, you know, am, uh, am I fit to do that? It's gotta be a question that's gonna come up then while he's still weak, while he's st- well, his recovery may mm-hmm. be even in a sense still in doubt, right? So maybe it's like awesome. in
3: that scene where he he's with Maglor and they go out and they greet the crowd like outside his tent in the camp. What I have them doing there is Maglo is like handing off the crown he puts right. it on Mathos and Mathos steps out and everybody is super happy to see him and I had Mathos like look at Maglo a little bit surprised like why are they so happy to see me
1: right right
5: um, the only concern i have there is that it that doing so touches the abdication like you'd have to be very careful. Like if you wanted yes. to avoid the, yes. any perception that he's abdicating because he's not sure that he's the right kind of self. Out of, se- of
1: self doubt. No, exactly. There would have to be then a following scene which shows his resolve. Right. That that to. But I, to me, especially given the fact that Mithros' weakness is still remains such a factor, not only through Episode Two but through Episode Three as well. Um, It's still such a factor that I think, I think that it's something that we can't say, Rhiannon, thinking back to what you were saying before, I don't think that we can trust our audience not to, not to ask that question, not to, not to wonder about that if we don't Mm -hmm. now. Are, would they specifically wonder about like taint from Morgoth and whether his whether he's corrupted and compromised morally or 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 in his will they might not necessarily ask that if we don't plant that but some kind of um, i guess this is this is the other thing this
5: is why you have focus groups so you can figure out whether right. or not that's happened <laughs> happen. <before laughs>
1: exactly exactly this out. um here's here's the other thing so um, Nick, you brought up Calabrian, and, uh, in my mind, I, I do think that, uh, uh, Calabrian is a really interesting, um, uh, pairing with Mythros, right? I mean, uh, in that both of them experience a very significant trauma, right? Both of them are changed by that trauma, but they respond to that trauma very differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um and that difference is something that I think we could emphasize even more with Mithros. The way that Mithros, because uh, and and Nick, I was thinking of this even when we were talking about what happens with his spirit as Morgoth is sustaining his body and as he is sustaining himself through um, through the experience that his you know his spirit is you know you described his spirit being um, uh, spent right uh, during that time or the, you know, the, the, the fire is burning in him. So like hotter and hotter and hotter, uh, so that yeah. he makes it through. This, right.
2: And the thing with mydros is he's just such a mission focused guy. Yeah. He is so certain that he came down off that mountain to fight Morgoth. Yes. Right. And yes. he never doubts that
1: exactly. he knows
2: that he wasn't supposed to survive. But his conclusion is and therefore yeah. since I did, it is my fate to right. carry right. on this war. So he's he's not maybe I don't know whether or not he would have personal doubts, but he never has any doubt that there was a reason he lived and he's gonna do something with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and right. what
2: he's going to do with it is very oath related,
1: <laughs> right? No, I agree. So I mean, so yeah, exactly. My thought there is that the moment of doubt is—it's—it's it's just about his own weakness, right? It's—it's it's not about doubt of like what should I do, exactly as you say. It's—I think that maybe when he's lying there in bed, he does have a doubt of like, can I do? Th- am I good for anything anymore? Am I? Am I going to be able to like? I see. You know, like I know what I want to do. Right. But but can I do it? And how can we do it? You know, how how can I do it? How can we do it? I mean, there's a way in which he could even see and this doesn't come out explicitly, but he could even see his own physical weakness, his own physical and spiritual weakness in his time of recovery. Could even be kind of mapped onto uh, symbolically, mapped onto the division of the Noldor, like the we- the weakness of the Noldor. They are n- in no fit state either. Neither one of them, neither the Noldor as a, as a group or he himself, are in any fit state to go attack Morgoth right now, right? But so he so he ra- he, he he would perceive that, right? But rather than he he does not despair. Right. Instead, his the fire of his spirit burns even hotter within him, and he drives himself uh, to recover, uh, both physically and spiritually, and to take the action that he sees to be necessary in order to bring the Noldor together uh, and forge them into a weapon to use against Morgoth, right? And that's the abdication.
5: I would say that that's definitely a thing that could be done. Um, it would require giving my, there's a lot more screen time than we gave him in that episode. As far as I, as far as I'm aware, um, which, I mean, it's fine. It's a, it's a thing that can be done. It's just, you know, things would, it would require some like, cause we would have to invent something to kind of bring him out of that. Like something would have to actually happen, you know, to visibly see that.
3: Because Maithers isn't going to like have a soliloquy where he talks about how he feels that he is weak and the Noldor are weak, and so he has to do something about this. And, he and like, over the course of his speech, advocate, he, he like, comes to a realization, yeah. happens, like it, it's his decision and nobody knows about it. It's a complete right. surprise to the audience, to his brothers, to Frank to his people, to everyone. Right until he like actually
1: takes off the crown at the end. Right. Agreed about the surprise, and that's okay. But <laughs> see, Nick, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with you. I think that that can happen in the course of the one conversation, right? Because it doesn't have to be. And again, here I think is where I'm agreeing with Maria about Mithros's character. When I say that he has this moment of doubt, I don't mean that he necessarily has to like be in a steady state of self-doubt, and then something needs to happen to break him out of that state of doubt. Um, I think it can merely be... I think it needs to be acknowledged, but I think it can merely be... I, I think it could be, like, that conversation with Maglor, um, Rhiannon, as you were suggesting, to, to sort of put some put some of these new dynamics in that conversation, which, of course, the moment when he is then going out... Uh, um, out of the tent uh, and being, you know, sort of reacclaimed as High King by the other Feanorians um, seems to me a very logical culmination that like his when he steps out of the tent. See what I don't want him to be. I don't want him to be diffident there. Right. He should have his decision made. He hasn't said what it is yet. The bigger decision. Right. But um, in the tent privately with Maglor. Right. Now, he's not going to say this in public he could express doubts uncertainties you know to say you know he can say he can make it clear that he is determined to fight morgoth right just as marie says that he is his path is clear to him his 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 his, his calling his destiny is plain right but he's not sure like can i do it you know am i going to be able and he looks down at his stump right and he's the like
2: timing the timing for that would have to be the first conversation yes. both maglore and Curafin are in the tent mm. so the question is would myros say that in front of kerifen cuz he's not an idiot mm. which w- yeah. would be one way of overcoming the self doubt within the same conversation because right he could be expressing frustration with his brothers running things and being like, "Well, guess I gotta get better because you guys have made a mess of everything <laughs>
3: and that, that being like one of the first scenes in this episode is him taking control of his brothers like he stops Magdalene Cofin from arguing with each other about the events that happened by like telling them to stop and exerting his will over them, so he probably like if he had a moment of doubt, it probably happened before episode two started.
1: Possibly so. Or again, we could, if we want to just kind of can, <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to let, I, I'm more willing to let the moment of doubt go than I am willing to compromise his determination. Um, mm. And I think, but I mean, I, I, I don't think there's an absolute need to let the moment of doubt go. Um, even again, if only just a question, of, like him acknowledging the difficulties, right? Um,
5: I mean, it definitely can. It definitely can be done. It's it's a question of of restructuring some things, moving some things around. But I definitely think it's something that could be done.
1: But I do think, I do think that the attitude towards Mithros. Okay, here's here's a way for me to explain the, the 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 thing that I think would be if when people are looking at Mithros during his recovery period, right? I think that the question that people should be asking is not whether or not Mithros is gonna be able to recover. Like, is Mithros always going to be just a shell of his former self? Right. Which is what that seemed to me the subtext. Of a bunch of people's conversations about Mithros in the script, as is, like that they were, wor- I and mean, we just like conveying their worry about him, their concern for his well-being. That's totally appropriate, but, um, but instead of them saying to each other, essentially, "Gosh, is Mithros ever going to be more than a shell of himself?" It sort of seems to me if he is as focused and determined as I think he is after his uh, uh, release from the cliffside. Um, I think the question they should be asking each other, if they're worried about him, the direction in which they should be worried is, Mithras is still sane, right? Like, he's not a he's little not too obsessed. He's not is he? Well, or, or like, I mean, basically, it, I mean, does he sound a little bit like Captain Ahab? I mean, like, like is, I mean, if anything... I think he should
5: sound a little bit like Captain Ahab. Yes, Captain I think he should, do.
1: I mean, I think that he should be, uh, like, absolute, like, I mean... He needs to stop one or two steps shy of monomaniacal. But, mm-hmm. like, not, he should be in the zip code of monomaniacal. <laughs> you know like he totally should and yes. like in in a in a good way in a rational and benevolent way you know so it's like he you know he doesn't become in the most rational way you. one can be monomaniac <laughs> exactly but i mean really so i mean and there's there are small ways in which i felt that was that got conveyed when we see like you know him uh, uh his like the training montages and stuff later on but Yeah. It wasn't... Again, again, again. It wasn't over the top enough for me. Yeah, okay. In that way. All
2: right, we we can make Mythros
1: more over the top, no problem. Mithras should be more over the top. I mean... I I think I remember asking for that scene to be more over the top. (laughs) And the question, even, like... Again, I'm trying to think about kind of projecting myself into the perspective of these other characters. If anything, should somebody on, uh, you know among the you know the 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 uh, on the Fingolfin and, and and Finarfin side shouldn't somebody be asking the question um so is is Madras going the same direction as his dad i mean like you know should somebody toss out the phrase spirit of fire uh
3: well, Fingolfin does that at the end of their duel i think in episode 4 mhm but, but he he, he... Is very much impressed by Mythos's ability to fight. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the duel, I have him like saying that the fire of your life burns hot within you. And then Mythos is like concerned for a moment because he's like thinking about dad and what happened right. when the fire of his dad's life burned hot within him. And that didn't end up too well for Finn Or right. but then Pingolfin says, it's a different fire from your father's. Right, right. So he recognizes that Mythos is fiery and determined and focused like yeah. feanor but he isn't feanor right
5: it it makes me think i, I don't know if how many people have uh, watched the firefly show um there's a scene where these two guys are are captured and they're being tortured right and one of them is yeah. like an experienced veteran soldier he's the captain and he's yes. like the 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 epitomal tough guy, right? Yes. Yes. And the other guy is the pilot who's kind of a wimp. And he's getting Physical, he's kind of yes. getting by on jokes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But really, the captain is kind of like, like dragging him back to sanity every yes, once in a while by yes. making him mad, right? Right. And when the the pilot winds up getting released, right, and the captain's still there being tortured, and the pilot goes back to the ship. And he's, he says to, to another character, he's crazy. And they think that he's talking about the guy who's torturing them. And he's he's like, no, 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 the captain is crazy. <laughs> yes, yes, and and like that kind of like single minded resolution, I think, fits Mythros very well. Yes, like people should kind of come like if, if somebody was sparring with him, they should come away with the, this thought of this guy's like. I mean, I could wail on this guy all day, and he would just keep coming back. It, it's like. It's like um there's a scene in Rocky 2 where the where the that guy who's training Apollo Creed says to Apollo Creed, "I saw you beat that man, like I never saw anyone get beat before and the man kept coming after you." And yes. that's kind of what Mither should be like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I really <laughs> I really like the duel scene. Um uh I, I thought that was really neat. Um I think, I think I did want it to be. A, first of all, I didn't know who was going to win. Uh, you know, I really didn't. Like I, I was, uh, and I'm glad that Fingolfin won because we need to show Fingolfin being like, uh, you know, powerful. Not
5: right? getting we, beaten by a one handed dude.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> see, but that's the thing. Like Maedhros, at the like, has got to be a big deal. Uh by the way, when well, and he gets
5: we... by there through just sheer ferocity and tenacity. I think is is kind of what the the situation is. Like Fingolfin's probably physically stronger than than Myros, but there's a lot to be said for someone who just keeps getting back up
1: and who has no regard for their own pain and suffering. Yes. Yes. Um Yep. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um uh, and that's, yeah, that, that scene is going to be, would be, you know, I get really interesting for, uh, uh, for actors and stunt people to perform, um, because it really does have to convey, um, the, I, but again, I kind of wonder if there's a moment when Mytheros almost loses control, right? I mean, when, when he's just, cause it's, I mean...
5: When he almost goes Luke Skywalker on
1: him. Well, yeah. I mean, I I think that Mithros is uh, not absolutely Berserker, but, like, pretty close to Berserker, uh, you know, in combat. Um, And if he just kind of flips it at one point and... uh, um...
5: There, There should definitely be... At least a moment during that fight scene where the audience is concerned for Fingolfin's personal safety. Yes, that should definitely happen. Yes, like he comes out on top because he's
1: more skilled it, and stronger. Yes, right,
5: right. Um, but you know, like there, there should not be a. It should not be a foregone conclusion. It, and and maybe at the beginning, people might be thinking, "Oh, there's no way that Mithros comes out on top of this," but as things progress people should start being
1: like he could win this thing right right you know yeah which and again i don't think he should look like much of an underdog really um by the way when you got when you had him training and we we saw, you know he was like you know beating five or six people um were you imagining him beating five people sequentially or simultaneously
5: i was thinking that that was going to like there was going I was thinking of it like a montage where it was kind of like getting progressive, like the difficulty level was going, was yeah. going up over time. Yeah, because you know, he, I, by the way, to totally
1: the see Mithros defeating oh, yeah. five yeah. of his people at once, like one on five. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Um, That's fine.
1: Mythros needs to be an absolute maniac on the battlefield. Like it's, um, he doesn't necessarily have to be the most skilled person, but he is the one that you would want to face least on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. He needs to be an orcs
2: fled before his face because he is as one who had returned from the dead.
1: Ah, Exactly. And that is the face that we need to see, uh, during, at come out during the, during the fight. Right. Revenant. Yeah. 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 This, uh, uh, again, like he is, he is, um. in the zip code of <laughs> of of like serious uh, uh, serious uh, disorder, right? Um, uh, still, still. So what
2: you're saying is that the Maestro of Episode Two is a little bit too tan calm for you, even though he's bedridden. We yep. should see a little bit more sparks of this kind of stuff going on.
1: Yes, yes. He okay. can't physically do this any of this stuff yet. But again, I think if we show. Um, Show his resolve. We we need to show the fire of his spirit, even when his body is not yet recovered. Uh, and more of I that. think
5: a lot of that is going to be acting as well. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, no question. It, it's 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 tough when you're putting a lot of this stuff down. It's tough to explain a lot of this stuff in in, in enough detail where, like, it's absolutely clear to anybody reading it what situation is, mm-hmm. right? And what people are, are thinking beneath the surface because the, you know, a, a, um, a, and this isn't even a shoot, a
1: shooting script, right? <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. No, clearly, clearly. Okay, good. Well, so that's, uh, I, we should, I we should stop because it's getting super late. Uh, and what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so my apologies for that. Got carried away. Got, got lost in the scripts as I was when I was almost one o'clock. It Th- is. This yeah.
5: happens to us all the time.
1: Exactly. It's almost like... one o'clock, uh, and uh, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna. We should, we should, yeah. we should stop. But yeah. we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll pick up here. What's pick? Uh, we, we've talked about some things from three and four, so we, we you right. don't have to go through all of them. But what, what's resume with three and four, some of the things that we didn't talk about with three and four, and then we'll move on at least. So let's plan to do basically like three through six, and we'll see where we go um, mm-hmm. uh, for next time. Um, Sounds good. And next time, of course, is, uh, uh, yes, the 17th. Yes, October 17th. Um, uh, so we are, in fact, going two weeks from today. So that's good. We're back on our two-week schedule. Um, so very good. All right. Excellent. So More script discussion on October 17th. Thank you guys for uh, joining us, everyone who's listening live, uh, those who are listening after the fact, and of course to our guests uh, who have done all of this wonderful work. This is uh, fantastic. I just can't uh, cannot express enough how much fun it is uh, to be reading and discussing full film scripts. Uh, Thank you for all the work you guys have been doing, and I'm looking forward to talking about this again in a couple weeks.
3: Well, before we go, I'd just like to say yeah. one thing is that I would not have been able to write these scripts without all the work that everybody who has ever been involved in some film, film has yes. put into this project.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it is, uh, um, you know, the the sort of original ideas and concepts that we had of community involvement, you know, in this podcast series that I decided to do. Um, you know, I remember Trish and I discussing that way back at the, wouldn't it be cool if we got like a lot of community involvement and people really contributed? Um, that was, um, I mean, uh, we, you know, would never even have imagined, uh, what, um, uh, uh, what has actually come about? So, uh, Rihanna, you're absolutely right, and thank you again, of course, Rihanna, for becoming such a big part of that. Uh, you are an inspiration. I, I hope to others uh, who might be late in finding the project, and uh, rather than feeling daunted because we're already up in season four, um, uh, you know, caught up and jumped in, and you've you've become such an important part of this uh, this project during this season. So, uh, I'm so glad that you uh, that you jumped in like that.
3: Thank you. Me too.
1: And of course, you know, to Nick and Marie for sticking around through the whole time too. Yeah. That's also appreciated. Don't want to underplay that. (laughs) They're awesome. Thank you guys. Look forward to more scripts and more discussion next time. Uh, So we'll say thanks for listening and Godspeed.